Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real talk, black talk. Sounds right in? Yeah. Belong to a dude named Spooky. Mean old Vato Loco, that motherfucker was crazy. Nobody fucked with Spooky. Even the cops respected him, you know? We used to watch his house. They gave that motherfucker 230 years in the penitentiary, too. You like dogs? Yeah, I got a Rottweiler. Yeah? Yeah, yeah. Rotties are good. Dobermans are better. Spooky used to raise Dobermans. So I'm in the second week of my patrol. I'm rolling out here with my T.O. We pull up at Spooky's house. There's this old man out front named Too Fine, drunk, smiling, beating the shit out of this female Doby. Beautiful dog, seven months. He's beating the shit out of her with a garden hose. Dogs crying, yelping, and I was raised with dogs, so I'm thinking to get out, do something to this motherfucker. My T.O. says, no, no, it's cool, it's cool. He starts waving. He starts waving at Too Fine, right? Motherfucker starts waving back at us, just like smiling and shit with one hand, beating the fuck out the dog with the other. I'm about to lose my mind. My T.O. looks me in the eye, good old boy too, looks me right in the eye and said, said he's teaching the dog to hate niggas. I said, huh? He said, Spooky paid too fine $20 to beat the shit out of the dog to teach him to hate niggas. I don't know who's asked to kick. T.O., Spooky, Too Fine. I was ready to quit. Ready to jump out that black and white and go take a bus home. That's fucked up. Man, man. I'm saying that to say this. Soon as you think you've seen everything out on these streets, these streets will teach you something twisted. Academy Award-winning performance, Denzel Washington. Context of white supremacy, Gus T. Renegade, and for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's day, Thursday, July 16th, 2020. So I have been told the audio segment that we started with, Denzel Washington, Ethan Hawke from The Purge Training Day Academy Award winning performance from Denzel Washington Uh, that segment is from the deleted scenes I remember the first time I saw Training Day I didn't like it and then I remember sometime later uh, I was at a friend's house and he had the uh, bonus features all the bonus stuff and things I guess when you purchase the film and I remember watching those deleted scenes and I said wow I wonder why they didn't put this segment about training the dog to hate niggers why did they take that out of the movie they have so much other crassness uh, throughout the the film what would be the reason to take that scene out it stuck with me I've remembered it and then white dog Romaine Gary's best seller international 
bestseller. It was first published in French, translated to English, made into a major motion picture uh, in 1982, directed by Sam Fuller. Uh, I've said for many years that White Dog, the film, is one of the best movies on racism, white supremacy I have ever seen. At first, it came out in 1982. I didn't see it until The Cows was already in existence by the time I saw it. Uh, So it was somewhere after 2009 when I saw it. Uh, And so I had not seen it in some years. Uh, I went back and watched it again recently, and it has stood the the test of time. Uh, It is still one of the best films that I've seen about white supremacy racism, and it is substantially different from the book. Uh, This is supposed to be loosely based on an autobiography. Uh, It is a white author, and he is known for lying. So might be true might not be true it might be embellished very good to keep in mind this is a white man who is known for lying be that as it may white dog the general premise police dog an Alabama police dog that has been trained to hate negros Mr. Romaine finds the dog And it goes from there. Not a whole lot of explanation required. So excited. Thanks to our listener who helped us get our hands on the book. Folks should keep in mind as we read this text, this book costs close to a thousand dollars on Amazon right now. And I don't think that's because of the Rona. Why? Oh, why is this book so valuable? White dog, Romaine Gary audio segment one. White Dog by Romaine Gary Part 1 Chapter 1 He was a gray dog with a mole like a beauty mark on the right side of his muzzle and tobacco-colored hair around his huge, shining truffle of a nose. It made him look like the inveterate smoker on the sign of the smoking dog, a barbaric in Nice, who greeted me on my way to school in the days of my Mediterranean childhood. He was watching me, his head cocked to one side, with that unbearable intensity of dogs in the pound waiting for a rescuer. He had the powerful chest of a fighter and, many times later, When my old Sandy teased him, I saw him shove away the other dog with the effortless power of a bulldozer. He was a German shepherd, and he came into my life on February 17, 1968, in Beverly Hills. I had just rejoined my wife, Jean Seberg, who was making a movie. That day, a rainstorm hit Los Angeles with the kind of larger-than-life fury you soon come to expect in America, where everything tends to be more dramatic and violent than elsewhere, with both nature and man trying to outdo each other at the art of showmanship. In a matter of minutes, Los Angeles was transformed into a lake dwelling with humbled Cadillacs crawling pitifully along through rapids. The city now had the incongruous, surrealistic air of things intended for quite another use. I was worried about my dog, Sandy, who had taken off the previous evening for a night on the town somewhere around Sunset Strip. 
the strip was not the best place in the world for a simple, credulous soul. Sandy had remained a virgin until he was four, thanks no doubt to the strongly moral influence of our highly principled family, but recently he had lost his head over some cheap trash from Donahue Drive. Four years of solid middle-class upbringing had flown out the window. The poor dog was quite unable to cope with the insidious seductions of the Hollywood set. We had brought along from Paris all our menagerie. There was a Burmese cat, Bruno, and his Siamese friend, me. Actually, me was a male, but for some strange reason, we had always thought of him as a she, probably because of the wealth of fond caress he showered on us. There was also an old female alley cat, Bippo, of a misanthropic and nasty nature. She would scratch you, hissing at any attempt made to stroke her, and would stare at you with an I-know-you-all look. I have never met a better informed cat. There was also a toucan, Billy Billy, we had taken on in Colombia, and I had just offered to Jack Carruthers private zoo in San Fernando Valley a magnificent python 23 feet long named Pete the Strangler. He had crossed my path in the Colombian backwoods at the same time as the toucan and each of us was so impressed by the appearance of the other that it had become a kind of friendship based on mutual lack of understanding. I had been compelled to get rid of Pete because no one else would look after him when, seized by one of my irresistible urges to run away from something which I can only describe as the claustrophobic predicament of being trapped lock, stock, and barrel within a human skin, a very inhuman situation, I would dash across continents in pursuit of what I don't know something truly different anyway. I may as well say here and now that I have never come across anything truly different except for some quite remarkable cigars in Madras, one of the greatest and nicer surprises of my life. From time to time I would pay a visit to Pete. Jack Carruthers had built a special enclosure for the python out of respect for writers. I would go in, squat on the pebbles, and face the other creature. We would stare at each other in absolute astonishment, often for hours, deeply intrigued and wondering, awed and yet incapable of giving each other any kind of explanation about what had happened to us and how and why it had happened, unable to help each other with some small flash of understanding drawn from our respective experiences. To find yourself in the skin of a python or in that of a man is such a mysterious and astonishing adventure that the bewilderment we shared had become a kind of fraternity, a brotherhood beyond and above our respective species. Sometimes, Pete would fold into a perfect triangular position with only his slightly oscillating head emerging from this rigid geometry. Pythons don't roll up in a ball. 
they tend to be squares and in the first days of our relationship I interpreted this as some sort of Kabbalistic sign an attempt to communicate with me as I happen to be one of those seekers who forever look for secret meanings and messages waiting to be discovered and decoded buried within life's apparent meaninglessness and chaos. I have since been told that the triangular position is assumed by pythons in self-defense in the presence of all things strange, suspicious, and possibly dangerous. Thus, I learned that Pete the Strangler and myself did have one thing in common, an extreme wariness in dealing with people. About noon, when celestial floods were rampaging through the streets, I heard a familiar baritone bark and went to open the door. Sandy is a big yellow dog with a broken left ear, a not too apparent descendant of some far off Great Dane. The heavy rain and the mud had given his coat the appearance of crushed chocolate. He was standing at the door with his tail down and his muzzle low, the picture of guilt and shame, acting out the return of the prodigal son with the kind of perfect phoniness. He had been warned never to go out without telling me, and so I shook my finger at him and repeated the words, bad dog, several times with all the severity of the adored and feared lord and master at which he duly reacted with a deep sigh assuming an even more wretched and miserable air then the ritual fulfilled he tilted his head back to tell me that we were not alone and that i should moderate my transports in the presence of a stranger he had brought home a guest his companion was a graying German shepherd, aged about six or seven, a beautiful animal whose strength and air of intelligence were striking. I noticed he had no collar, which is very unusual for a dog in America. I brought my lowly cur inside, then wondered what to do with this high-bred gray friend. He was waiting in the rain, and his wet fur made him look like a seal. He was wagging his tail, his ears were pricked up, and he was watching me with the attentive intensity of dogs eagerly expecting an order. He was waiting to be asked in, claiming the sacred right of refuge, that ancient law that millenniums had so firmly established between dog and man, those old companions of misfortune. It is fairly easy to form an opinion of a dog's character, except with Dobermans, whom I have always found unpredictable. My great guest was good-natured, tolerant, and even fatherly in his endurance of my six-year-old son Diego's tail-pulling whims and beautifully house-trained. Moreover, anyone who has lived among dogs knows that when an animal you trust shows friendship for another, one can almost always rely on his judgment. My Sandy, though a bit of a romantic, is a gentle soul with a rosy, loving outlook and the spontaneous sympathy he showed to this colossus save from the flood was for me the best recommendation possible. 
I informed the SPCA that I had taken in a stray German shepherd and left my telephone number in case his master showed up. I was relieved to note that my guest treated my cats with respect due to these scornful deities and showed himself to be a well-mannered animal of a pleasant and humorous disposition. During the next few days, the German Shepherd proved to be a great success with my friends, who at first were rather taken aback by his fearsome appearance. I had called him Bakta, which means Little Father in Russian. Besides his wrestler's chest and his big brown gray muzzle, Bakta had canines which looked like the horns of those little bulls they call machos in Mexico. Yet he was very good-natured. He would sniff the visitors carefully for the purpose of future identification and then would shake hands as if to say, I know I look frightening, but I'm really a good fellow. At least that's how I interpreted his efforts to reassure my guests, but obviously a novelist is more likely than normal people to be wrong about the nature of beings and things because he has a tendency to imagine them. I have almost always invented everyone I have met in my life and particularly those who are close to me and share my life. For a man accustomed to dealing with imaginary beings and to whom invention comes quite naturally, it makes human relationships much easier and it saves you a lot of trouble. You no longer waste time trying to get to know people you don't have to bother and pay attention. You make them up. Afterward, when you get a surprise, you bear them a terrible grudge. They have deceived you. You have lived with an imaginary being, and when reality suddenly sets in, you feel cheated. They were not worthy of your talent, so to speak. More often than not, when comes the moment of truth, you emerge from your comfortable unreality feeling a real bastard. Nobody claimed the dog, and I had begun to consider him a member of my family. The house I occupied on Arden had the usual Beverly Hills swimming pool, and the maintenance company sent me a workman twice a month to check the filter. One afternoon, while I was writing, I heard a sudden, long howl from the direction of the pool, followed by angry, staccato barks. This is how dogs signal the presence of an intruder and the imminence of the attack they intend to carry out within the second. It is often only a canine equivalent of our hold me back someone or I'll kill him. But with true well-trained watchdogs, it means business. I know of nothing more nerve wracking than these sudden violent outbursts of rage. Their purpose is to paralyze you and to keep you there without making a move or else. I ran out onto the patio. A black worker who had come to check the filter stood on the other side of the iron gate. Bakta was hurling himself against the gate, foaming at the mouth in a paroxysm of hatred.
it was so frightening that Sandy had crawled whimpering under a bush with only his limp yellow tail showing. The black worker stood completely motionless, his face shining with sweat. A young man, and somehow the expression of fear is always more painful when you see it on a young face. He was safe behind the gate, but this was more a matter of shock than of danger. The good-natured gray giant, always so nice with our visitors, had changed into a primeval fury howling like a starved beast who sees the meat but can't reach it. There is something deeply demoralizing and disturbing in those sudden transformations of a familiar being, man or animal, into a total stranger. It is one of those painful moments when your reassuring little world flies to pieces, a discouraging experience for lovers of comfortable certitudes. The quiet dog had turned before my very eyes into a wild monster, and I have seen this happen with humans, too, when those I used to think of as people would suddenly turn into a savage mob. I was being brought face to face with the fundamental brutality which lurks deep within nature. We try hard to forget this menacing presence between its murderous manifestations. What used to be called humanism or idealism, the same thing, has always been caught in this dilemma between love of animals and horror of beastliness. I tried to pull Bakta back and drag him into the house, but the damn dog really had a sense of duty. He didn't bite me, although my hands were covered with his saliva, but kept throwing himself at the gate with bared fangs. The black American stood petrified on the other side, holding his tools. I remember with painful clarity the expression on his face because it was my first sight of a black man confronted with animal hatred. He looked sad, the way certain men look when they're afraid. During the war, I often saw that expression on the faces of my comrades. I remember a certain dawn before a low-level bombing soiree which had all the marks of no return. When Colonel Forquay had said to me, You look sad, Gary. I was afraid. I told the young man to leave. I wasn't going to have my pool cleaned that week. Forget it. Next morning, the same scene exactly was repeated when a man from Western Union brought me a cable. In the afternoon, some friends came to see us and Bakta welcomed them most graciously. They were white. I remembered that the man from Western Union was black. Chapter 2 I began to feel the unease known to all those who sense a harsh truth growing around them more and more obvious, but who stubbornly refused to face it. A coincidence, I told myself. I'm imagining things. I am obsessed by the problem. My feeling of unease became something akin to panic when Bakta almost got at the throat of a delivery man from a Cannon Drive supermarket. 
As I went to open the door, the dog was in the kitchen, but he bounced past me and leaped at the man's throat while keeping the crafty, treacherous silence that a surprise attack requires. He missed by a second. I barely managed to slam the door with my knee. The delivery man was black. That very day, I put the animal into my car and drove him to Jack Carruthers Zoo, Noah's Ranch, in San Fernando Valley. I have known Jack for years, and since our first meeting in the 50s, the old movie stand-in, who had fallen from more horses than almost anyone in the trade, had become an expert in training animals for the screen. His ranch also prided itself on its snake pit, where you can find all the most representative venomous snakes in America. Jake and his assistants extracted the venom needed for serums. The snake pit is a place I carefully avoid when I go out to the ranch as you look at all the wriggling, crawling things in it, you soon feel you are watching the unconscious of our own species, Young's famous collective unconscious, and that is a pretty depressing sight. Jack was seated behind his desk, wearing his blue overalls and his eternal baseball cap. A big man who looks calm and collected in that old-fashioned American way that becomes rarer and rarer today. His body has the kind of massive rigidity you often notice in aging men whose limbs and muscles lose their elasticity while keeping their strength. He had been a stuntman for something like 40 years and his bones had been a nightmare to insurance companies. He always wore leather straps around his wrists and on his right forearm there was a tattoo of a horse's head. He listened to me without a word, chewing one of those filthy cigars America has condemned itself to by breaking with Havana. What do you expect me to do? I want you to cure the dog. Noah, Jack Carruthers, is what is known as a quiet man. The quietness is of that slightly ironic nature which comes from an inner strength too sure of itself to be in need of assertion through the usual physical cliches of hard-boiled showing off. Only the strangely motionless stance of that massive body carries a hint of controlled aggressiveness, a kind of deliberate physical withholding. But that may be the self-reflecting observation of a man who is used to keeping himself carefully on a leash. I have come to accept once and for all the fact that I shall never succeed in suppressing entirely the inner savage animal that I carry everywhere within myself like so many French motorists at the wheel of their instrument of power. Everybody likes Jack in Hollywood in spite of his cold, rather standoffish way of not quite welcoming you. They like him because he is a man who understands that the canary you entrust to his care is not replaceable by any other canary and that a gentleman who has just brought his boa constrictor to board 
begging you to take the utmost care of the beast is parting with a much-loved creature. Much-loved, perhaps, because the boa is the most different thing from himself he has found which makes love possible. Cure the Dog Jack stared at me with his ice-blue eyes. Meaning what? This dog has been trained especially to attack blacks. No, I'm not imagining things. Every time a Negro comes near the door, he goes mad. Vicious. With whites, nothing happens. He wags his tail and shakes his hands. So what? What do you mean, so what? It can be cured. No, your dog's too old. A little mocking twinkle gleamed in his eyes. As far as the old generation is concerned, forget it. You ought to know that. Jack, everyone knows you've done wonders with so-called vicious animals. Depends on how old they are, and how vicious, or rather, how vitiated. You just can't do much about things that have become second nature. It has very little to do with nature, mind you. Anyway, your dog is too old. You can't undo a lifetime of deliberate professional conditioning. It's a matter of patience. It can be done. Nope, it's too late. He must be around seven. He's got the habit. You can't change that. It's inbred now. Deep in. Deep down. That's it. He's learned what they made him learn, and that's the kind of dog he is and always will be. Period. We can't leave him like that. Okay. Put him to sleep. That's what I would do. It seems to me it's the people who trained him who should be put to sleep and Jack began to laugh. He's one of those lucky guys who can get the whole world off his back in a ha ha ha. I'm not even sure I can keep your pooch here. I've got two black helpers. They won't like it. Well, okay. Leave him for the time being. We'll see. I say goodbye to Bakta. He watches me, pricking up his ears and cocking his head a little to one side with that intense, absolute concentration of animals whose minds have reached the limit of instinctive comprehension while actual understanding, in terms of human reasoning, remains beyond their grasp. I come back and sit down with him and stroke his gray head. See you soon, little father. Don't worry. We'll lick them all. We'll make it all right. Somehow. I drive through Coldwater Canyon with enough stones in my heart to build a few more cathedrals. The broad avenues between the proud, tall palm trees are deserted. Only the cars are inhabited. I go around and around in circles in this motorized emptiness then follow Wilshire Boulevard where there are sidewalks and people. A sidewalk here is an oasis. I end up at a friend's house. 
His days are numbered after three major operations. A well-known screenwriter, he was one of McCarthy's victims during the witch-hunting days in the 50s and was kept from working for 10 years until his health was gone and a sort of mild yet unshakable sadness set in. I found him busy working at a model city he is building with all sorts of clever do-it-yourself kits. He has been putting his fucking utopia together for two years now, interrupting this crazy, dedicated work only to dash off one of his science fiction scripts for TV. All that is left of his hope, love, and belief in man's future goes into building of his ideal city. The city of light, he calls it. He puts it together, then demolishes it, rebuilds it again, and lovingly polishes every detail, then starts from scratch again, never satisfied, working in a shed at the bottom of the garden beyond his pool. The whole thing is a combination of plastic and steel with an agonizing dream of beauty and perfection, and it is stronger than the illness that is eating him away. A total dedication to something that cannot be and never will be, a desperate trust, a craving for the absolute that nothing can shake. A devotion to a magnificent unreality that could end up in reality some day, if there were only more lunatics like him. I give him a hand with his palace of culture with a beautiful view over the sea, but after half an hour I've had enough and leave him to his masturbation. The car radio announces riots in Detroit. Two dead. Since Watts and its 32 dead, this country is haunted by the thought that America is a land where a record never remains unbroken. Still, my belief in this people's future remains unshaken and unshakable. Americans are notoriously bad at not solving problems, in the sense that they are incapable of living with thorns in their side. It may well be due to the absence of what can be called a tradition of acceptance and forbearance. So evident in European history, a mixture of absolute power of kings with Catholic submission. Whatever the reason, this refusal to accept misery and suffering as part of our human fate is more striking in America than in any other nation I can think of. The consequences are sometimes destructive to the individual. It makes the national character more prone to neurosis than anywhere and it partly explains why this country is more vulnerable to drug addiction than Europe. Heroin and amphetamines are really nothing else but an instant solution to all problems, an all-solving gimmick, an illusion of absolute remedy. The psychological makeup of a European makes him less exposed to that kind of solution because in terms of culture and history he is better adjusted to the impossibility to adjust that is to coexistence with the unacceptable the American can't abide things that don't work out 
I don't believe that the conflict between white and black can continue unresolved in this country simply because indefinite acceptance of such a situation presupposes a radical change of the country's national characteristics. I see no example in history of America giving up on itself. When you think of mankind, you can console yourself with faith, hope, with Shakespeare, antibiotics, or with our footprints on the moon. But with a dog, there can be no alibi. Every time I went to visit Bakta in his cage, I could see a silent question in his eyes. What have I done? Why am I locked up behind bars? I have always done as I was taught. Why don't you want me anymore? There was no possible answer to this basic innocence facing me, except a reassuring caress. I always left the cage in a state of self-hatred, and here I must quote a famous line from Victor Hugo. I had looked for it a long time with no luck until one day Mansour Hilo, now president of Lebanon, gave it to me. When I say I, it is you, all of you, I am talking about. The dog had been in Jack's hands now for almost two weeks, and I had been visiting the animal every day. I wanted to know how I was doing, if something could be done about me, about the hardcore of primeval savagery in all of us. It was seven o'clock in the morning, except for the night watchman, Fred Hokum. There was not a trace of a human presence in the Noah's Ark. Heavy drops of dew hung on the leaves and flowers like some shining fruit of dawn. Dr. Doolittle's giraffe was watching me, its soft, languorous eyes and its long, airy, feminine eyelashes would fill with envy the ladies in Elizabeth Arden's Salon's debut. Bakta greets me standing on his hind legs, wagging his tail and showing his teeth in something very much like a smile. He had caught my smell before seeing me. I press my cheek against the wire netting and feel his cold nose and hot tongue. It is not difficult to recognize an expression of love in a dog's eyes, and I think of my mother because of this faithful dog and because of love. My mother had green eyes. I also think of a beautifully idiotic opinion expressed by one of my friends, an excellent novelist, in his usual English persnickety, supercilious way, a mixture of condescension, exquisite feelings, and psychological dandyism. I don't like dogs, he told me, because I don't like the kind of bootlicking love they offer you. You can never tell where dignity is going to get screwed up next. I didn't have the key to the cage, so I sat there on my heels while Bakta watched me lovingly, his muzzle resting on his paws, and it was one of those moments of peace and communion, feeling good together, I mean sharing something, a quiet happiness. The sky of dawn was still fresh and pure, filled with that California blue which always carries the suggestion of orange groves, palms, 
eucalyptus trees and canyons ringing with a million voices of insects and birds that shining hour before cars and factories exhausts begin their daily murder of air and light when the yellowish rotten smog raises into the sky its flag of pestilence i intended to leave unnoticed after my little daily communion with dog and nature i had nothing to say to anyone but as is often the case with happiness, I had lost all notion of time, living outside of myself, sharing something I don't know what, with light, trees, and with the sweetness of the air. It was one of those moments when a man can still feel almost a part of nature. It must have been about ten o'clock when I saw the black keeper walking toward the cage. Like everybody in the zoo, I called him Keys, for the hundreds of keys that dangled from a belt around his waist and had earned him the title of master of the keys and controlled of all the lion dens, snake pits, alligator pools, monkey houses, kangaroo cages, and all other compartments in Noah Jack Carruthers' ark. He was still about fifty yards away from us when Bakta pricked up his ears got up quietly and froze in total immobility. Then, his ears back, he leaped forward and hurled himself against the bars with a long, frustrated, hateful growl. I felt drops of saliva fall on my face. Besides the Pavlov reflex image of slaves fleeing through the cotton fields that instantly sprang to my mind from the long-gone days of history, there was again the shock brought on by this sudden disintegration of the familiar, the instant transformation of a friendly nature into ferocity and beastliness, with the familiar suddenly becoming the unknown. Keys walked by the cage without a glance at the dog. He was smiling with sunshine and smile, sharing his face a thin young man in a short-sleeved shirt with a little mustache perched over his lip like a butterfly, a vague resemblance to Malcolm X. But then I always see a trace of that fallen fighter on black American faces. Hello there, he said to me. Nice day. Hello. I was squatting on my heels, avoiding his eyes while Bakta was throwing himself against the steel netting of the cage with strangled howls. The howls would stop suddenly while the animal looked sideways at Keys, baring his fangs, his mouth foaming, his head turned one way and his eyes squinting toward the black American. Then he would throw himself once again at the steel netting, repeating his savage hunting call for blood. The black man was smiling. I said, no progress. Keys pulled a pack of Chesterfields from the pocket of his denims and tapped out a cigarette. He took it between his lips directly from the pack, lit it with a lighter, and looked calmly at the dog. Yep he said white dog I remember the sudden flush of irritation the indignant reaction of how am I to define it of my self-respect it was really a little too easy now come on I said that's not funny and it's cheap 
He watched me for a while with that calm, total self-control of someone who knows and who doesn't have to prove it to you or convince you. White dog, he repeated. You know the kind? His searching eyes kept drilling deep into me as if I had two or three centuries of history hidden somewhere on me. No, you don't, of course. Well, man, you haven't lived. He's a white dog, all right. He comes from the south. Down there, those doggies especially trained to help the police against the black people are called white dogs. That's what we call them. They're given a thorough training. The best. They're not watchdogs. They're attack dogs. I was dying inside because I was the one who had trained that dog. The famous line from Victor Hugo was a reciprocal. When I say you, I'm speaking about me, of course. There's a nice song, T for two and two for T, and you can make another song with the words, I am you and you are me. And there is even a word for it, brotherhood, brotherhood. There's no way out of that, no emergency exit. Outer Mongolia, I thought, that's where I'd like to go. Outer Mongolia. It is the word outer that I find irresistibly attractive, of course. Get the hell out of it all. A complete outsider with clean hands. In the old days, they trained them to track down runaway slaves. Things have changed. We don't run away anymore. Now those dogs are used against us by scared cops. The dog was strangling himself. So was I, silently. And with a watchdog like that, your white wife can sleep in peace. If you happen to be away, no one will come and rape her. Keys turned toward Bakta and inhaled the smoke slowly. He watched the animal with an expert eye. A beauty, he said. Wish I had one like that. He's a fine animal. He shook his head. But he's too old. About seven, I'd say. You can't change him at that age. It's set in real deep. Too bad. He remained silent for quite a while, watching the dog almost dreamily. He was thinking something over. Today, I am convinced it was at that moment that he first thought up his little scheme and that the dreamy expression on his face, that speculative look, was the look of a man surmising his chances. Be seeing you, he said, and walked away slowly with the keys ringing around his waist, and I remember thinking of troika bells, with my mother and me driving through the Russian snow, one of the recurring memories of my childhood. Bakta calmed down immediately and busied himself with a flea. I went into Jack's office but found no one there. 
Jack was on a studio set supervising his star chimpanzee who was acting in a TV picture, an ape version of Romeo and Juliet. I went home. Jean was out. She was attending a meeting of the Urban League. It was a matter of training young Negro kids for the future unemployment. I spent the afternoon alone on the patio with 20 million American blacks on my back wondering what to do with them. Slowly the cowardly idea of writing a book began to stir in my head my usual way out of the suffering of other people. You don't write books to help people. You write books to get rid of them, to help yourself. In the afternoon, there was another meeting, this time at the home of a drama coach. Its aim was to enlighten certain whites as to the degree of hatred for whites reached by black children and to get from them funds necessary to keep in operation a Montessori school without hate. I had refused to attend. I had been so overexposed to history since my early teens that the very idea of signing a manifesto of making another purely verbal protest denouncing another intolerable social situation just to relieve my conscience and to feel better to feel a fine human being fills me with shame. I cannot resist human suffering. I fill my books with it and they bring me a great deal of recognition, esteem and material comfort. You either give up everything and share the suffering or you just tend to become an exhibitionist of your noble deluxe conscience. You achieve a kind of aristocracy on other people's backs. You become a professional of indignation. You keep signaling your nobility and your social awareness turns into a kind of elegance. Since my early youth, I have been stricken with elephantiasis of the skin. I mean, my skin has grown far beyond my own and it hurts me in and through the skin of other people. I was determined to put a stop to that. There are a million ways of becoming a whore and one of them consists of getting rid of injustice and suffering by merely writing best-selling books about it. I must also confess that I felt a strong dislike for the acting coach in whose house the fundraising display of black children's hatred was to take place. I saw in him a typical California phony. He was one of these progressives who are up in arms against our society while speculating in real estate. Besides, I cannot stand people whose political beliefs stem not from social awareness, but from secret psychological flaws. Young people claim, with good reason, that certain disciples of Freud are wrong in seeking to adjust them to a sick society. Yet the reverse operation, the attempt to adjust society to your own sickness, does not strike me as a solution either. And some of the artistic methods of this particular acting coach gave me nausea. At a gathering of his class, I saw him order a young actor to give him a long, wet kiss on the mouth. The actor was perfectly heterosexual and married, but this was part of the method. The purpose of this kiss against nature was to get rid of inhibitions. In this case, the 
inhibition the young man felt when it came to mixing his saliva with that of another man a process of liberation I was told well I don't know I guess something is wrong with me but it seems to me it was the coach who had a problem not the student I didn't show up at his place but I was given a detailed account of the pathetic little demonstration in which a few black kids aged seven to nine conscientiously played their well-rehearsed roles their parents were present and here follows a dialogue between the kids and a white lady who was a friend of the family and in whose home the black parents and their five children were living I guarantee the authenticity of this word-for-word transcription but first imagine the two black kids standing there surrounded by 50 thoughtful white adults am I a honky Jimmy yes ma'am you're a honky am I a blue-eyed devil here a footnote for my benefit in the teachings of black Muslims and their prophet Elijah Muhammad people with blue eyes are fiendish enemies yes ma'am you are a blue-eyed devil do you hate me Jimmy here the report reads a long moment of hesitation the child blinks worriedly he glances towards his parents swallowing hard well the poor kid had been smothered with kindness for months by the blue-eyed devil in question and he had a problem the problem has a name an act against nature the report further notes deep sigh from the child yes ma'am I hate you a hesitation sort of the report ends there it does not say whether after his performance poor little Jimmy dancing on his hind legs was given a sugar and a pat on the head I bet the parents breathed easier after that the kid didn't let them down goddamn masochism exhibitionism showmanship and also good old conning the typically American art of exploiting the credulous immortalized by Mark Twain a way of gaming whitey smacking of the old Mississippi days of magic medicine the tar and feather days you almost hear that old steamboats whistle for it is obvious that Jimmy didn't hate anyone that the whole thing went against his grain he had to force himself and even so felt compelled to add sort of after I hate you that sort of is America's greatest hope the people who had organized this little demonstration whatever their good intentions proved only one thing that the greatest spiritual force in history is stupidity yes ma'am I hate you sort of and they passed the hat around out of the goodness of your hearts ladies and gentlemen they pat Jimmy's militant head candy
But again, as Seberg says, all the hope for America lies in these two words. Sort of. Thank God I wasn't present. I would probably have bitten someone. Which reminds me that it's high time I bought myself a stronger leash. The one I have is wearing out. I've been using it so long and so often. One of these days it's going to break and I'll end up in a dog pound with no owner coming to my rescue. They say God is dead. After reading this report, I had to go for an hour's run through Beverly Hills. My friends think I run to keep in shape. Not at all. I run to work out the hate, anger, and resentment, the love and the fury, to tire out the animal in me, and then I put him back on that leash and come back home, pleasantly emptied in that state of physical fatigue which takes care of all your inner boilings. It was ten in the morning when the phone rang. Jack Carruthers was on the line. Can you make it here right away? Why? What happened? Just come along, okay? I did. He was all there, behind his desk, with his crushed nose, his gray crew cut, and the little circle of bare skin where his broken skull had been patched up with a steel plate. He looks Prussian the way people do when their faces have been flattened by all the beatings they've taken. The baseball cap had slid back with its peak high, an aggressive erection. He lights cigarettes and puts them out immediately, which he calls not smoking. He has a typically American proletarian distinction, a kind of physical nobility of build and movement. He didn't say hello, just stared at me with extreme distaste. All right now, I want your permission to put him to sleep. Why all of a sudden, come on, I'll show you. The old dog was lying on his side, panting heavily. His mouth was bleeding. He saw me and wagged his tail feebly a few times without raising his head. We went into the cage. Jack leaned over the dog and felt his ribs. The dog had a spasm of pain. You've made me lose my best man. Keys? Yes. He'd go by the cage 20 times a day and every time it was the same damn thing. All hell breaking loose. Rage. Blind animal rage. That dog has been remarkably well trained. A good pedigree. Keys didn't seem to pay much attention except that he seemed to be hanging around the cage a bit too often. I guess he wanted to fill himself with it. The howls, I mean. The rage. His master's voice. You get it? Every morning he comes here to... To refresh his memory, I bet. To wind up his hate machinery. The dog licked my hand and left traces of bloody saliva on my fingers. My hand hesitated. I pulled it back. The dog was looking at me, waiting for his reward. You see, I did what they taught me to do. I'm a good dog. I stroked the faithful head. So, this morning... 
Marquise put on a protective suit and went into the cage. He had it out with the dog. I heard both of them howling, and I'm telling you, I don't know which one howled the loudest, the dog or the man. He almost killed him. Sure, sure, you don't have to say it. I know it isn't the dog he's getting at. Only them. You see, he didn't have them at hand. I wish he did. The dog paid for his masters. Then, Noah, Jack Carruthers, laughed. A quiet, good-humored laughed. He hit me. Tried to knock me down. Yeah, I know how he felt. I just happened to be there with my white face. When I helped him to his feet, he took off all his keys one by one, put them down on the desk, and left. I'm sorry, Jack. Really sorry. Me too. There are millions of people who are terribly sorry in this country. Being sorry doesn't change a thing. Now listen, you can't change that dog. It's in him and it's there to stay. The best thing you can do for him and for everybody is to have him put to sleep. He's been ruined. Well, you see what I mean. Vitiated. He looked at the animal. They don't have the right to do that to a dog. Jack, I wish I could get my hands on the guy who, well... I don't think you'd have any success in changing him either. It's just a generation like that. It will go away by itself, nice and proper. That's what generations are for, for disappearing. Except I'm not sure the blacks, or this country for that matter, are willing or can afford to wait. He fixed his pale blue eyes on me, and they didn't make me feel very popular. So it's up to you. I won't have him put away. That's final. Right. Then take him with you. I won't have him here. He narrowed his eyes a little and wrinkles suddenly spread all over his face. Then he smiled his usual half smile, a strange unfinished thing that always stopped halfway as if hitting upon an obstacle like all the expressions on this patched up face with its numerous paralyzed spots. Why don't you place the dog with a kennel where they don't employ Negroes? There are quite a few of them around. I'll give you an address. Screw you. He nodded approvingly and went off, throwing away the cigarette he had just lit. I sat there on the ground in the damn cage next to White Dog. That's what they called him now. White Dog sounded like some kind of constellation up there in the sky. I let time pass. I let pass as much of it as I could. One hour, maybe two. I don't know. I had made up my mind, but I used the finality of the decision I had reached as an excuse to put it off. I go to fetch the leash from the car and phone Chuck Belden. How are you, Chuck? And could you let me have your gun? I'll give it back tonight. Context of white supremacy. That is audio segment one. So for me, we're on page 27 of the book, still rolling, very early in the text, uh, White Dog, Romaine Gary, 
Uh, we had, or I have had computer problems. Man, 2020 has been the worst year ever. Computer difficulties, uh, which messed up the live stream. So just dial in uh, to listen to the live broadcast. Uh, if you had difficulties, I had it figured out. I was on my counter-racist grind and doing my best to compensate, and it worked, and then it wasn't working anymore. So I was briefly satisfied, and then it's 2020, man, the year of the Rona and everything bad. So you can dial in. I'm trying to make sure I give out the <clears throat> correct new number. The new number is 720-716-7300. Same code, 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 as usual. New number again, 720 Seven one six seven three hundred. The code five six four nine four three pound. Press star six one if you would like to participate. Make sure that I get this in since this is our debut study session on White Dog. Uh, I picked this book. This was not a vote, even though I did mention it and some other people said, oh, wow, that sounds interesting. I'd like to check that out, too. Uh, but Gus T. picked this book. So if it is not constructive, particularly since we are in the midst still of a global health crisis, protests, uh, race soldier shootings, badge or no, all of the you know extraordinary and disastrous things generally – uh, that are happening on the planet, uh, for us to stop in the middle of the summer and read a book about a nutty hound, it better be something really informative about this text, especially the way Gus T. sat up here for two months and talked about Nutricide, worst book ever. Uh, this better be really informative. Listeners should be super like, Gus, man, you got us up here reading craziness? That's one. Number two, <clears throat> the movie, this book was published in French in 1970. I think this is at least the second time we've read a book that was not published in English the first time around. Uh, so it became a bestseller, and it also became a movie uh, that was produced in 1982. We are like 20-some pages into this text and have already diverged substantially from the movie, like to the point of no return. Like 20 pages in, this is already a totally different uh, story than what you would see if you watched the movie, which is very good, but it is not this at all. Like the first 20 pages are about the first mm, 30 minutes or so of the movie. It's about a 90-minute film, so it's about the first 30 minutes of the film. The next hour is totally different, not this at all. Even some of this is not quite the same. Uh, so definitely you can check it out, and we'll compare and contrast, you know, and note, you know, why they changed it, because they made some substantial uh, changes to this. Like, wow. Anywho, uh, I will leave it. What is the last thing? <laughs> we should have maybe, we should have maybe, maybe read this book a long time ago, because the movie is so great, and then we could have put that with the uh, book. But, man, Gus T. says all the time, what does it mean? To be white. Why do they call this book White Dog? What does it mean to be white? 
should have read this one a long time ago. Star 6, as I said, super critical. We can't just be sitting up here reading about, you know, nutty hounds in the midst of all of this. Like, we got to be reading super constructive material uh, for 2020. Uh, folks who dialed in, if you have thoughts, observations, uh, star 6-1, folks with a hand up. Hmm, let's see. Okay. Man, that is the craziest thing ever. Uh, let's see. First few folks who dialed in with a hand up, feel free. While folks are kind of getting their thoughts together, I will remind, uh, we read uh, American Sniper, Chris Kyle, that was back in 2014, I believe, uh, kind of towards the end of the year. Uh, and many interesting things in that text, uh, but the one part I remember specifically that pertains to this, he talked about how they trained uh, the dolphins as a part of their defense mechanism for some of their bases. He was a Navy SEAL, but I remember we talked about that, like, wow, they will take everything. They go to the bottom of the ocean. Everything is going to be used for the purpose of practicing white supremacy racism. American Sniper. Uh, also, I would ask folks to kind of keep in mind as we read this text, this book, there are copies on it. Uh, they have some of the first edition uh, printings that are close to $1,000. Even some of the like regular used copies on Amazon are $75, like, wow, that is a substantial, like we've seen some books like that before, but I mean, wow, that is a hefty price for a book about a nutty hound. People can think about that as well as we kind of move through the text. Uh, I'll let folks take a few moments to get their thoughts together. If they did not think it was constructive, make sure you get that in too, because we can't be picking Nutty books, and this was my selection. Uh, I'll share a few of the notes that I took. Also, make sure I get in. Lots of there's a lot written about this book. If people want to do any homework, if you are intrigued, there's a lot. There's the film. Uh, the NAACP boycotted the film. Uh, it became a bestseller. It was originally published in French. Uh, I think there might actually be different endings of this book depending on which version you get. We'll have to kind of keep that in mind as we proceed. I think the French version, the ending is a little different than the English version. And I think there might, I think there might even be more than two different, uh, like written versions. That's not even including the film version, which is a totally different story almost. Um, but the author, Romaine Gary, suspected racist, born in Europe, comes to the States, if that means anything. Uh, but he is known for lying about lots of things, lying about his name, uh, lying about, you know, different parts of his life and, you know, where he lived and experiences and things of that nature. Uh, if you look online, you'll see lots of where white people like, wow, this guy, what a con artist, what a lot, this guy. So keep that in mind. And there are even people who, you know, question, you know, how much of this is truth. It is uh, billed as a 
semi-autobiographical account, kind of a memoir of Romaine's time in Hollywood and in the midst. Like I said, this was published uh, in 1970, so this is in the midst of the so-called civil rights movement and rioting and so-called all that uh, Vietnam. Uh, when he does his little visit to the Black Panther Party, uh, will be talked about in the book. Uh, but uh, he comes here uh, during this time period and is writing about all of this. There are a lot of white people who question how much of this happened, that he embellished, that he could have another, you know, great bestseller. Uh, this book did do well and get a film and all the rest of it. So we can keep that in mind kind of as well as we read. Uh, if there are any things that, you know, kind of stick out as being incredulous. Maybe he lied a little bit to us. Uh, let's see. Uh, I was going to share a few of my thoughts, but I like to let the listeners go first so that we don't have overlap. Uh, let's see. Uh, folks who dialed in with a hand up uh, should be with us. Can I be heard? Greetings, Missy, South Carolina. Probably non-Clemson grad as well. Yes, yes. We are really excited about this book. Um, looking forward to it all week. Hello, listeners. Hello, Gus. Um, first, first thing I would like to start off with is there's a reflexive relationship with the white dog. Um, the narrator talks about the Victor Hugo quote, when I speak to you about myself, I'm speaking to you about yourself, or um, when I say you, I'm speaking of me is how the book wrote it. Um, and it's just an interesting relationship between him and the dog. He, like, understands the dog. He feels like he can communicate with the dog, understand what the dog is thinking or having a conversation with the dog. And it's almost like he's having a conversation with himself. Um when we first are introduced to the the gray German Shepherd, he has a lot of a lot of lofty characteristics in describing the dog. Like he talks about how it was a high bred dog, it was distinguished, alert, pleasant mannered, good natured, um, you know, just just a very very noble types of characteristics. And I, I feel like even though he was attributing that to the dog, it was like he was projecting those characteristics um, that he would like to see in himself. And um, my husband, um, Clemson Grad, he was a little bit confused. He couldn't tell he was the book was written from the dog's perspective or from from this man's perspective. And I was like, I feel like the man thinks he is the dog, and he's very protective of the dog. And he he wants the best for the dog and has this this deep connection with it. Um, in in just the opening of the book, the narrator talks about this menagerie of animals. He he's like a collector of animals, and he he has this this deep connection with all these different animals, but his relationship or connection with people isn't really there. And, what I've noticed is a lot of a lot of white people will say, "Oh man, I love animals more than I love human," or "Oh, I feel like my dog or cat or whatever is my child," and they'll call them fur babies and all this kind of stuff. And they they have this 
established relationship and this loyalty, this unshakable loyalty between the, I guess, the, the human and the dog. And people will get upset, be like, I don't own the dog. I, I'm not the owner of the dog. The dog owns me. And I feel like that this book talks about that connection um, between white people and their animals. And I guess I'll, I'll allow other people to reflect on their their thoughts. Much obliged, Miss C. Non Clemson grad. Great observations about, uh, I guess, kind of joint observations, a dual effort uh, about the the book being written from the perspective of the dog. Uh, and the kind of reflexive relationship between uh, Romain Gary, the author, and uh, Botka, even the name that he gives them, Little Father, is so noble, the characteristics. Uh, we have a segment, Albino Affairs. White people often display that kind of immediate connection with those little pale critters. doesn't matter if it's albino squirrels, albino horses, albino trees, uh, albino giraffes. doesn't matter. Albino dogs. You are already in the fan. Then you don't like niggers. Oh, this is simpatico. We are right there. We are right there. Uh, and absolutely, in terms of white people connecting to animals and treating them like people and all, even amidst the rot, I told you I went by the pet store, essential business. White dogs got to eat, even during the Rona. Uh, let's see. Other folks who dialed in with a hand up, if you have thoughts to share. Greetings, everyone. Uh, yes, uh, it, it seems as though uh, it didn't take very long for uh, the book to get to the point about the dog's problem. <laughs> Didn't take very long. I, it seemed to be only about maybe about three or four paragraphs. Uh, uh, also, I have the uh, the uh, thoughts similar to the uh, last caller that uh, the dog is actually substituted for the behavior of white people or a white person as far as uh, instincts or behaviors of practicing racism, uh, especially when the uh, the person that uh, he was taking the dog to was explaining, giving the explanations on why I can't stop, uh, uh, detrain the, the, the dog on his behavior when it comes to non-white people. Uh, it sounded very similar to a uh, perhaps a uh, scientific analysis of white people in general and the inability of them to stop practicing racism. That's what it sounded like to me anyway. Uh, some non-white victims, VGQ. But uh, looking forward to uh, have some more thoughts on the book based on the readings, and that's all I have to say. Thank you. Much obliged, retired firefighter. Absolutely. No wasting time on this one. Right to the point uh, with White Dog and what the issue is. Uh, let's see. We had folks who wrote in as well, get some of our written commentary. 
one of our investors writes in. Uh, let's see. Boop. Fit the, there we go. Fit the screen correctly. Uh, this book, number one. Sorry, here we go. Number one, this book is resonating with me from the start since my attempted spouse who grew up in the southern U.S. and often tells me white people down south teach their dogs to attack black people. Oh, my goodness. Look at this in parentheses. Black males especially. Now, how do you train a hound not just to hate black people, but black males specifically? How is that even done? How do they distinguish? Number two, in quotes, enlighten certain whites as to the degree of hatred for whites reached by black children. I thought this passage exhibited the author's sarcastic view of so-called white liberals and their counter-racist efforts. I thought he described himself as a liberal. It did sound like he was kind of, of doing some mocking of, you know, these are his homies. They're hanging out at his house and such. Number three, since my early youth, in quotes, since my early youth, I have been stricken with elephantiasis. I was proud of myself for pronouncing that one correctly. Of the skin has grown far beyond my own, and it hurts me and through the skin of other people. I was puzzled by this passage. Is the author using his skin as a metaphor for empathy? That is an important uh, passage. I'll read the quote again. Uh, Since my early youth, I have been stricken with elephantiasis of the skin has grown far beyond my own, and it hurts me in and through the skin of other people. That's the section. I also, it stood out. I don't know if this means that he feels like he can connect to or empathizes with other people. That certainly seems odd because he talks about being so disconnected and Miss C and non Clemson grad talked about how he's more connected to the dog than other people. I don't know. It could have just been liberal mumbo-jumbo. We'll have to see or see what other people think about that passage. But, yeah, it stood out to me as well. Number four, put the cur in a clean living kennel with no niggers, end quote. He's a black Muslim, you know. All you can do is help him get a ticket to Mecca. I'm told the Muslims qualify. Oh, wait a minute. We didn't get that far. All right. We'll have to come back to this later because we can get that far. But that part is coming up, uh, black Muslims. So we'll stop there. We'll get back to the rest of uh, our written commentary later. Uh, let's see. Uh, other folks who dialed in, if we've missed you totally, if you have commentary. Hi, guys. Be in Toronto. Hi, good greetings to you, callers and listeners. Um, with the last quote that you had mentioned, um, I was thinking of it more in along the lines that he's he, he's disconnected um, with other human beings, um, but connected with the dog. Um, so I I think with when his empathy is in regards to human beings, um, it's been calloused. Um, and that's where, oh gosh, I, that term, I cannot say that term. Um, elephant. Elephantiasis? Yes, elephantiasis. Thank you. <laughs> I'll just, um, 
so yes, um, so I, I think that when it comes to human beings or, or in particular black people, his, his conscious, conscience is calloused. Um, that, that's what I'm interpreting from there. Um, but um, I'm still learning, and uh, I'll leave the line uh, awaiting more of the story. Hmm. Let's, let's see. Elephantiasis is a condition characterized by gross enlargement of an area of the body, especially the limbs. Other areas commonly affected include the external genitals. Elephantiasis is caused by obstruction of the lymphatic system, which results in the accumulation of a fluid called lymph in the area in the affected areas. Hmm. I don't know. Metaphor, I'm thinking. He did travel a lot, so I guess it could be. I've seen pictures of him, and he didn't look, you know, peculiar. Hmm. Um, interesting metaphor. I have to ponder on it a little bit more. Uh, I'll share. I'll keep an eye out if folks have uh, comments that they want to share on the first portion, uh, and then I'll share. Oh, Thomas in New York. Yes, sir. It seems like good evening, Dr. Spencer, all the callers. It seems like the writer, um, to me, I, I'm assuming I haven't read the book or seen a movie, um, that the white dog, as a metaphor for white people, you're trying to train them to um, relinquish their hatred. The guy kept saying the dog's too old to be retrained, and it, it kind of um, gives the impression like um, it's an older white people problem. You know, like the younger ones can be helped, but the older ones, it was, you know, it just kind of left that, that door open. Um, but other than that, um, so far, interesting, uh, uh, white, man, I mean, if you gave me an idea, maybe codified black should have a black dog, you know, a nice muscular mastiff or Makita or something, big, big dog that you train to, you know, act like that when white people come around. Um, just, you know, as a counter, but very interesting. I'm moving on. Much obliged, Thomas, in New York. Stay tuned. So, the Noah's Ark, uh, religion of of white supremacy, uh, just something stood out to me about that. Like he, we'll hear more about all the animals that they have, uh, Mr. Carruthers, which is in the movie, uh, where they've got all these critters and they train them and use them in movies and all the rest of it. Uh, this is in California, so they're you know show animals and such. Uh, but just something seems you know. I don't know how Peter would feel about all that religion of racism, white supremacy, and then they pull in the biblical uh, accoutrement of white domination over all the critters, niggers, snakes, dogs, everything. Um, I also thought, when you talk about the connection with animals, I thought it was interesting. The author spent a good bit of time talking about how he connects with this snake, Pete the Strangler, on page one, and just, I mean... We're talking about difficulty connecting with people, and two of the animals that he has expressed a lot of affection with are Pete the Strangler and the racist dog. Hmm. All right. So let's see. Keep rolling. Cut the python. 
thought it was a great point. Uh, the German Shepherd is is awesome, and the way that he's described, uh, he's immediately part of the family. He's so well mannered. You know, he's waiting to be invited in. I thought he was treated better than, you know, a lot of the people that he talks about in the book. You know, some of the white liberals and black people that he thinks are no counts and phonies and all the rest of it. This box is like the best ever. Uh, let's see. A gentle soul, like beautifully house trained. Like I, every time, because so many times in the book they talk about how incredibly well trained and well conditioned and well house trained this dog is. I was thinking about this the little sound clip we play at the end of the program. My conditioning has been conditioned. Like, wow. I don't wanna, white people are ignorant about racism, but they got dogs trained to attract attack black people. So much so that it pops up in Training Day in all these films. Like, wow, how do ignorant people train dogs to hate Negras, black males specifically? Like, what the hell? Uh, let's see. All the friends liked the little dog, of course. He's he's white, basically. Uh, let's see. Yes, yeah, so he finds out that Vodka does not like black people. That is something that is uh, similar in the film when it takes a little while for them to figure out, like, oh, okay, the dog does not like black people. Uh, and in the film, he actually kills several black people before they figure out, like, oh, okay, that dog doesn't like black people or kills black people, whatever it is. Um, but it takes them a little while uh, to figure it out. Uh, in the book, as Firefighter says, it doesn't take too long. Uh, thankfully, uh, but even the scene here, like the detail, like he's slobbering it savagely, like if this dog had done that to a white person, like if a white child had been walking by, or even if it had been a white person had come to cl uh, clean the pool, and he had done all that, and then a white uh, delivery driver uh, comes to bring a package or whatever it is, and he's arr, almost got his jugular, like man, that I, he would have been at the kennel. I don't think it would have been any resistance. Like, oh, you are out of here. Vodka is is acting a fool. He's almost attacked two people. Attacking some black. He almost chomped a nigger. Want to chomp a few niggers myself? I hate that Al Sharpton. Like that. That is particularly emphasized in the film. The chomping black people. And eh, I don't know. He don't. He just chomped a black person. I mean, he's a pretty nice dog. Like man. Let's give him another chance. Like, man, uh, let's see. Uh, let's see. The sneak attack, I thought that was important, too, that Botka has been trained so well to attack black people that once he sees, like, oh, they might stop me from getting at the nigra, I'll be stealth and creep. So he goes to open the door. He says he did it so fast. I didn't even recognize him. If I hadn't got my knee up to the door fast enough, he would have, you know, been able to get at him. Let's see. Next. So they go, see if they can get him changed. Absolutely. I thought that was a great point Thomas in New York made, uh, especially when they go, because they, they, they say it explicitly, right? He goes and he talks to Mr. Carruthers at Noah's Ark and says, you know, can you help him? Can you help him? He's too old, you know. 
I'd say he's about seven. He's too old. It's ingrained. It's just, you know, it's human nature. Uh, and I totally agree. I think that is very kind. In fact, it will be stated explicitly a few times uh, in the text that it's old people, you know. It, we just got to, these old people just got to die out. And once they're out of here, we'll have this problem licked. Totally false. That is a huge lie in the system of racism, white supremacy. Uh, let's see. I thought it was something as well. They make mention uh, Jack has these ice blue eyes. Just paying attention to that when that gets mentioned in the text. White people, blue eyes, or physical characteristics that are loosely associated with the uh, classification of white. Let's see... Yeah, he says it explicitly many times throughout the book. As far as the old generation is concerned, forget it. You ought to know that. Uh, depends on how old they are or how vicious. Uh, let's see. Too old. Mm-mm-mm. Let's see. Oh, I thought it was interesting that we just read... Uh, Einstein on race and racism, all about the McCarthy era, 1950s, and getting in trouble. You're a pinko. You're red. You're a commie, right? We just went through all that. And then, bang, page 14, I end up at a friend's house. His days are numbered after three major operations, a well-known screenwriter. He was one of McCarthy's victims during the witch hunting days in the 50s and was kept from working for 10 years until his health was gone and a sort of mild yet unshakable sadness set in. Could have been talking about Paul Robeson. Not really. Dog would have chewed him up, too. Let's see. Mm-mm-mm. All right, so he's weaving in. Like I said, so this is taking place in, like, late 60s. And he says, the car radio announces riots in Detroit, two dead. Since Watts and its thir- 32 dead, this country is haunted by the thought that America is a land where a record never remains broken. Now, that stood out to me for several reasons. Uh, just these records of deaths. Uh, particularly now with the COVID situation, that's all we get daily is a death count. And then even with the protests on how many people have been locked up and all that, and then white people say that they're ignorant. This was a bestseller where he's talking about the riots, tension, Negroes fighting. With what, Are you saying these white people would still be alive? Jane Elliott and such, they're still here kicking it. Grandparents, they would have had children. Did they not teach their children anything? That nonsense that white people don't know anything about the police and all their problems. They published so many books, did the same thing that they're doing now. They published a lot of tacky reports and books, TV programs on Watts and Detroit and the same thing. Rioting in some of the same areas, in fact. Let's see. Uh, racism, white supremacy is a, a problem. White people are not interested in solving. They do not even see it as a problem. Uh, and also, I think he does a consistent job of depicting racism as a problem in America and not a global system. That's pretty consistent with white people, too, especially since this is a white man uh, from a different part of the world. Uh, frequently, they'll do that. They'll uh, kind of people, white people that are born in the U.S., will point to, like, South Africans, oh, they're so racist. Look at the way they cheat the, the coffers. And then a white person in France, they'll look at, you know, 
the United States, like, oh, man, so bad how they treat. Look what they did to George Floyd and Sandra Bland. Oh, it's terrible. That type of thing. Not us, though. Uh, let's see. Mm-mm-mm. He goes and visits uh, the animal every day. I mean, there are black people in prison who aren't even allowed daily visits. And vodka, the, the Negro-hating dog, gets visits. Uh, let's see. Lots of talking about eye color. His mom had green eyes and all the rest of it. Uh, let's see. Anything else? Make sure that was important. I thought it was significant. This is on page 18. Uh, he says, Keys, this is the black male trainer. Keys walk by the cage without a glass. I think that's important, too. Black male trainer, Keys. Now, they call him Keys because he's got the keys to the kennels and all that jangling on his waist. Keys to the colors? Anyway, Keys walked by the cage without a glance at the dog. He was smiling with sunshine and smile sharing his face. A thin young man in a short-sleeved shirt with a little mustache perched over his lip like a butterfly. A vague resemblance to Malcolm X, but then I always see a trace of that fallen fighter on black American faces. I thought that was interesting uh, that she would see Malcolm Malcolm X does not look like any black person. Uh, and so to think that that's how that all, to me, in this character, that's almost every black person is some, you know, raging militant Negro, you know, kill whitey and by any means. No, like that is not black people at all. Not most of them. Not by far. Uh, let's see. No progress. I thought that his whole when Romaine Gary gets upset when Keys tells him that this is a white dog. He says, "What?" A sudden flush of irritation, the indignant reaction. This even to Miss C's point about he's talking about the dog, but the white man takes offense. You're talking about me. Wait a minute. What do you mean, white dog? I'm white, even though he's not even born here. I thought it was an American problem. I remember the sudden flush of irritation, the indignant reaction of, how am I to define it, of my self-respect. Interesting. It was really a little too easy. Now, come on, I said. That's not funny and it's cheap. He watched me for a while with that calm, total self-control of someone who knows and who doesn't have to prove it to you or convince you. Man, that reminds me of Dr. Wells and Keys to the Colors. White dog, he repeated. You know the kind? No, you don't, of course. Well, man, you haven't lived. He's a white dog, all right. He comes from the south. Down there, those doggies, especially trained to help the police against the black people, are called white dogs. We're reading this book at this time. So that before they had tanks and tear gas and tasers, they had doggies especially trained to help the police against the black people. Hmm. That's what we call them. They're given a thorough training, the best. See how many times that's been said? We're only like 20, 20 pages into the book. And how many different people, How is at least three different characters. Wow, what a well-trained dog. He's so remarkably well-conditioned. Wow, how much time and energy do they spend 
getting these dogs to hate Negros. Let's see. That's what we call them. They're given a thorough training, the best. They're not watchdogs. They're attack dogs, making the distinction. I was dying inside because I was the one who had trained that dog. And he gives the Hugo line again. When I say you, I'm speaking about me, of course. There's a nice song, T for Two, Two for T, and you can make another song with the words, I am you and you are me. So now he feels guilty, of course, guilty white person. Uh, let's see. In the old days, they trained them to track down runaway slaves. Things have changed. Or maybe they haven't. We don't run away anymore. Now those dogs are used against us by scared cops. Scared cops. Are we talking about that still 50 years later? Let's see. Gene Seberg is kind of, I guess, significant. We'll have to include some snippets uh, about her as we proceed. Uh She's a member of a lot of the alphabet groups as well. Uh, it was a matter of training young Negro kids. I love how they just interchangeably use Negro, nigger, blacks, because we've heard them all in like the first 20 pages. And sometimes it'll like Mr. Carruthers, he's used Negro, nigger, he's used them all. I love it. Like even blacks, he used that one one time, blacks. Just again shows all of those terms mean the same thing. You cannot clean up any of them in the system of white supremacy. Nigger is Afro-American, is African-American, is Nubian, is black, is colored, is Negro, is all the same thing. Nigger. Victim of white supremacy. Uh, This whole scene about the uh, black children who go like, I thought just his total, the racism of a white person in this, to, to look at this as though, Oh, how dare these children go do this and the parents to set them up to go do this, see if they can game whitey into get. You just said they have dogs trained for generations to go out and hunt black people. And you have the audacity. Oh, this is ridiculous talking about they hate white people. If he knew about the dog that was waiting to chomp on him, maybe he would. Maybe he should. Uh, let's see. I thought it was interesting as well where he talked about the uh, kind of cop-out, the cowardice of just a white person writing books about all this suffering because there's a lot of that, probably going to be a lot of that this year. White people, oh, the Negroes suffering with the Rona and the police, and I'm George Floyd and not in my – yeah, it'll be a lot of that. A lot of white people writing books this year. Let's see. About racism. Let's see. Anything else from this one? Uh, A footnote. He gives this footnote. A footnote for my benefit in the teachings of black Muslims and their prophet Elijah Muhammad, people with blue eyes, are fiendish enemies. I thought that was important because he doesn't have a direct quote from Elijah Muhammad. Uh, he, these are his words, but he's already talked about how his mother had green eyes and Mr. Carruthers has uh, ice blue eyes. So all of this focus on the uh, colors of individuals normally classified as white, their eye color, now to someone who's pointing out that same eye color and saying, oh, this is a racist. This is nothing to admire. This is the eye color of an enemy. 
he points that. I just thought that was important. Uh, let's see. Yeah, I thought this was important phrasing. So the child says, yes, I hate you, sort of. The report ends there. It does not say whether after his performance, poor little Jimmy, dancing on his hind legs, was given a sugar and a pat on the head like he's an animal. That's how they see black people. I bet the parents breathed easier after that. The kid didn't let them down. That's some sort of condemnation for black parents, victims of white supremacy, struggling and, and hoping for the best. This is the system that they have set up. We can go beg these white people, make a compensatory investment request and hope that they help us. We can go beg for a job. We can go beg the police to stop killing us. But this is the system that we're in. What would you have us do? You just want to write another book? Hopefully your racist dog won't chew us up as we try to get out of your house? Let's see. Gaming Whitey the way he That's the problem in 2020 from these young folks to Al Sharpton. Black people gaming Whitey is the problem on the planet. Let's see. And he does all this about stupidity, which I do not agree. Uh, you can't be stupid and have a perfectly conditioned dog to attract attack niggers. Uh Let's see. And again, that reflexiveness where he says, after reading this report, had to go for an hour's run through Beverly Hills. My friends think I run to keep in shape. Not at all. I run to work out the hate, anger, and resentment, the love, and the fury to tire out the animal in me. Because he talked about having a, needing a stronger leash himself as a dog, so there's a lot of that, talking about himself as a dog and Botka, the white dog, specifically. Uh, is that it? Anything else I need to get in? Mm-mm-mm. Oh, yeah, wait a minute. So Mr. Keys to the colors, uh, he says, so this is Mr. Carruthers, Noah's Ark owner talking. He says he'd go by the cage 20 times a day, and every time it was the same damn thing, all hell breaking loose, rage, blind animal rage. The dog has been remarkably well-trained. There it is again. A good pedigree. There it is again. The keys didn't seem to pay much attention, except he seemed to be hanging around the cage a bit too often. I guess he wanted to fill himself with it. The howls, I mean the rage. His master's voice, and he has masters capitalized. V and voice capitalized. You get it? Every morning he comes here to refresh his memory, I bet, to wind up his hate machinery. I thought that was really important, uh, as though this racist black, especially when we get to more of the Mr. Keys care. So this black fella is just coming and, oh, I want to get more of that hate whitey in me and hate whitey. and get, Like, do what? All you would have to do is wake up and turn on the television. What do you have to go hang out with this stupid dog for? <laughs> just... 19 said, what are they doing in Vietnam? Bombing non-white people today. Yes. Asking black people to go help them do it. Yes. Why do you need to go hang out with this dog? Let's see. And so then uh, Keys gets upset and hits Mr. Carruthers. What does it mean to be white? He hit me, tried to knock me down. Yeah, I know how he felt. I just happened to be there with my white face. When I helped him to his feet, he took off all his keys one by one and put them down on the desk and left. We were supposed to read this book, man. We were supposed to read this here book. I guess we were supposed to read it at this time because I've known about this book for a long time. But we were supposed to read this book, Keys to the Car. And even if you watch the movie, they do keep the black trainer's name as Mr. Keys. I think they have a scene where they focus in on the keys and then they focus in on his name, Keys. We were supposed to read this book. You'd have to be a student of Dr. Welsing for that. I, 
man, you should have asked Dr. Welsing, like, what do you make of this? Black fella named Mr. Keys is in charge of changing this racist dog. Hmm. Anyway, uh, anything else to get to? Oh, there it is, last time. He says, it's just a generation like that. It will go away by itself nice and proper. That's what generations are for, disappearing. Except I'm not sure the blacks, or this country for that matter, are willing or can't afford to wait. He says, the blacks, not the African Americans, not the colors. He doesn't even say the Negroes this time, the blacks. Uh, and then my last one, he, uh, the author, Gary Romaine, now he's reflecting on this dog being called White Dog. And he says that's what they call him now, White Dog. And he says it sounded like some kind of constellation in the sky. I think he throws that in, at least in my view, it's important because white is so typically associated with white Jesus, white lies. Everything positive and pure and perfect is white now for white to be this thing of hatred, evil, killing, and terrorism. And it's a white. Do I say that in 2000 seasons, you really don't get the word or white, the color, anything associated with something vile. There you go. And it bothered him greatly. Uh, he associated black people with monkeys a few times. I guess I'll, I'll uh, just get that in because he, he said he had black people on his back. Uh, did, I, did we get that far yet? We might not have got that far yet. We didn't get that far yet. I'll have to get that in later. Uh, any other folks? Extra comments they wanted to make sure they get in. Anything didn't make sense and or uh, if anybody, again, if you are critical, this is some nonsense. Got us reading silliness when we could be reading something more serious and more, you know, important, informative, given the current situation on the planet. Any final comments before we get to the second audio segment? All righty. If you have additional comments. Make a note. Jot them down. We will have ample time as we proceed. Oof. Haven't even, we haven't even got started yet. We haven't even got started. Be thinking about that. This black fella, Mr. Kennedy, that could be his name. Like I said, this kind of autobiographical, they say he could have lied. Mr. Key, even if he did, what does that mean? Black character who's in charge of this dog, Mr. Key. Keep that in mind. Any other thoughts as we proceed? Romaine Gary, White Dog, Context of White Supremacy, audio segment two. I go back to get Batka. He hobbles after me with his tongue hanging out. He tries to jump onto the front seat but can't make it. One or two broken ribs, I bet. I help him and we drive along Ventura Boulevard, then through Laurel Canyon. At the red lights, people smile at the good dog settled quietly next to the driver, inspecting the road. At Van Nuys, I run a light to avoid stopping next to a truck whose driver is a black man. I shut Batka in the garage. Chuck brings me his army colt about four in the afternoon. I pour myself a scotch, but think better of it. I have no tolerance whatsoever for alcohol and haven't touched the stuff for over 30 years. I can't allow myself to drink a glass of scotch and then cruise around town with a loaded gun close at hand. With me, liquor makes the leash snap and I lose whatever control I have over myself. So I empty the glass into the begonia pot and get behind the wheel. 
Botka loves to be driven around watching other dogs with a superior air. I close the windows and we ride through Hollywood, driving toward Griffith Park, where I used to go for my early morning runs before going to work in my consular office at 1919 Outpost Drive. Ten years ago, those scrub-covered hills were a favorite place for lovers of nature and simply lovers. Today, people take a drive through this wilderness, but rarely leave their cars. The crime rate is rising constantly in L.A., as in all big cities, and though you only have one chance in a thousand of being mugged, each of us imagines destiny as a personal, exclusive relationship and feels a specially selected target. The park is empty. I stop the car near the Pilgrim's Cross and let Batka out. I take the gun. Batka looks at me. He knows. Instinct or some other kind of intelligence. He hangs his head low. I am carefully behind the ear. White Dog looks at me again and waits. My hand shakes. I am crying. Tears drown everything around me. The world is a gray swimming mist. I press the trigger. I miss. The dog hasn't moved. Didn't react to the shot. I feel as if I have tried suicide and failed. White dog raises his eyes toward me, then lowers his head again and waits. You don't believe me, I know. We'll get the hell out of this book then. This is God's truth, and it's for true believers. I turn away and vomit. Come now, sir, so much fuss over a cur. What about Biafra? Yeah, sure, I know, Biafra. Doing nothing for Biafra, that's some excuse for not doing anything for a dog. There's a new kind of logic around. Because of Biafra, because of Vietnam, because of Hungary, slavery and wretchedness almost everywhere in the world you feel excused from helping a blind man across the street the gun is slippery in my wet hand come here white dog he gets up looks at me takes a step and sniffs the barrel of the gun merd no never why should i care about the blacks they're just people like you and me. To hell with them. I'm not a racist. And as for putting a bullet through Botka's head, there is a name for that, Mr. Romaine Gary Sir. Capitulation. It's never happened to me yet. You don't give up when you hold a loaded forty-eight in your hand. The hills around me the scrubby bushes, entangled like barbed wire, are already fading away and the evening mist is softening the thorny landscape. But the softness stays outside. I light up a Havana cigar, expensive enough to feed an Indian family for ten days. We'll make you a nice, loving, democratic beast. He offers me his paw. Pity there isn't one of those nice, clean walls around. I could have scribbled a few of those proclamations of faith and humanity that all walls, particularly prison walls, are so good for. A new world is in the making. When it comes to clinging to a hope, I am unbeatable. A real champ. 
man shall prevail. I know I am cheating. I am conning myself, but I have only one philosophy left. Anything goes when faith in man and trust in his future dignity are at stake. When it is a matter of preserving that essential investment, cheating, despair, and cynicism have always been a sacred law of the species. Truth can be made. It can be made to materialize against all logic and odds through the very act of serving it with total obstinate devotion. I don't believe a word of it, of course, but the important thing is that it works. I experience a euphoric boost of energy, a strengthening of my moral fiber. I feel myself again, by which I mean a sucker no one can cheat of his faith. In what? In you. I give Botka a friendly wink. It can be done. With a little good will and patience, we shall overcome. I open the car door for him and the dog jumps next to me. We're off. The little psychodrama is over. I pull up at Schwab's and phone the zoo. No one answers. I look up Jack's number in the book and give him a full account of the Griffith Park happening. Why are you telling me all this, may I ask you? Keep the dog until I leave the States. I'll take him with me. Listen, Gary, get off my back. Forget it. Put the cur in a clean living kennel with no niggers. I know a terrific one in Santa Monica. Strictly deluxe. All white. Even Mayor Yorty couldn't do better. All right. Give me Key's phone. What for? I'll talk to him. He's a black Muslim, you know. All you can do is help him get his ticket to Mecca. I'm told the Muslims qualify for one if they present Elijah Muhammad with five blonde scalps or five pairs of pink ears. If he goes back to work at your place, will you take the dog back? It's a deal. I have 200 snakes full of beautiful venom and no one to milk them. Keys is a venom expert. The best. Anyhow, I don't have his phone number here. Call me tomorrow at the office. I lock Botka up for the night in the garage with a royal helping of dog food. I don't breathe a word of this to Jean. This is not exactly the right moment to tell her white dog is here. There is another meeting of black militants in the living room. Seaberg has belonged to every possible civil rights organization since she was 14 and living in Marshalltown, Iowa. Her idealism is of that typically American kind that cannot leave a problem alone without solving it, a trait of American character totally misunderstood in Europe where it is always cleverly interpreted as hypocrisy. It creates a serious problem for our marriage. There is a 24-year difference between us, and I have done all my fighting, bleeding, and swallowing of defeats and delusions between the ages of 17 and 30. I was in all of it. Mussolini's invasion of Ethiopia, Munich, Spanish Civil War, Second World War, and it is more than I can bear to start it all over again and to witness her own daily defeats, 
indignations, tears, anger, a kind of continuous flashback into my own past. As soon as I appear in the living room, they all shut up. They can feel it. It shows. I mean, you only have to look at me to feel a certain coldness. Some of the people present, both black and white, are true fighters and as earnest and sincere as they come, but I learned long ago that the favorite hideout of con men, racketeers, and parasites is in the shadows of a good cause. It offers perfect cover and excellent opportunity. In the case of that particular meeting, I was soon proved right. A few weeks later, one of the bastards present, who happened to be wearing a black skin, turned up at the house with a nice attempt at blackmail with, no doubt, that noble excuse of gaming whitey, an attitude which is quite rightly considered by some blacks as Uncle Tomism in wolves' clothing. Miss Seberg, we have a letter you have written. It can badly damage your reputation. In this letter, you agree to carry a message of greetings and sympathy to the African revolutionary students in Paris. There are even the names of two black power leaders among the signatories. If this letter gets published, your movie career in America. Jean told him, publish it and drop dead. Afterward, she cried a little. Miss Seberg is still at an age when she can be disappointed in people. I get Key's phone number the next morning and call him up. A sweet little girl's voice tells me Daddy is out. You don't know where I could find him. The child sounds worried. Is it about an animal? Yes, it's very important. There are whisperings at the other end. Daddy's at the Pancake Studio on Fairfax. I look up the Pancake Studio in a phone book and find Keys settled in front of a mountain of pancakes dripping with maple syrup. He's wearing one of those Muslim skull caps, which looks as if they have been cut out of a carpet bag. Hi, he says. Hi, very polite, in a cold, absent-minded way, and points his knife at the chair. His teeth are very small very white and sharp, very close set, and the effect is that of twice the quantity of teeth in any ordinary God-fearing mouth. Listen, about that dog, I know, I know, I'm sorry about that. I lost my head. My ears got mad. Your ears, huh? I repeat, trying to suppress the expression of idiocy on my face. Yeah, I have sensitive ears, you know. They couldn't stand those howls, so I beat up the dog, the way you smash something that makes too much noise. He thinks things over, his knife and fork busy with the pancakes. Once more, I caught that expression of scheming. There's no other word for that thoughtful look with a trace of slyness, and I was to remember it later and doubt now that I shall ever forget it. Bring him back. I'll take care of him. It's going to take time, mind you, but it can be done. 
he lowers his eyes toward the mountain of pancakes, basking in a kind of golden sunset, and cuts it carefully in four. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I can manage it. It'll cost you a little more, of course. It'll take a lot of my time. Do you want me to talk to Jack? He won't mind, as long as I take care of the snakes. Bring the dog around noon. He was eating his pancakes with such relish that it made my mouth water. He's a beautiful animal. It'd be a pity to give up on him. He watched me thoughtfully and grinned in a display of pearly white sharpness, a quick, then knife-like stroke of a smile. Chapter 3 I take Batka back to the kennel and give Carruthers the good news of the imminent return of his loved one. The snakes will once more be milked of their venom for the good of humanity. I find Jack drinking his morning coffee. He's leaning against the bars of the monkey colony. A little black hairy thing is trying to dip its finger into the cup over his shoulder. Jack holds his buttered toast out to him. The tiny monkey bites into it, and Jack eats the rest. The kangaroos have been a real pain in the ass this morning, he informs me. The mother has beaten up Papa good and proper. I don't know what's the matter with that family. Kangaroo psychology, my friend. Sometimes I just give up on it. They say Australians are like Americans, but with kangaroos, that's not true at all. What's the matter with that bitch? There's no other female in her fellow's life, so what the hell? It's a damn nuisance. Because this afternoon, they're to give an exhibition, a boxing match for the benefit of Korean orphans, and the old man is scared shitless and in no shape to fight. He's terrified of her. You know... All kangaroos are a bit nutty. One I had a few years ago would faint every time I presented him with a female in heat. He'd sniff the air with quick little sniffles like a rabbit, and then he'd just pass out. An emotional type. The female would get so indignant that she'd jump on top of him with both feet. Psychology, my friend. It's nothing but a bag of troubles. Want some coffee? Sure. So Keys is coming back, huh? And he's going to take care of the mutt? Keys is a great guy. Noah, Jack Carruthers sips his coffee dreamily. Yeah, he says with a total lack of conviction. His very pale eyes go over me, then he glances away. The monkey stretches out his arm and snatches the rest of the toast from Jack's hand. Yeah, the snakes love him too, Jack says. Keys is a real charmer. He empties his cup onto the grass. Never seen a son of a bitch more full of hate than that one. He says with obvious respect. It's a real pleasure to have him around. Okay. I better go and try to boost the morale of my kangaroo. He stares at me again. Just why are you doing all this? What do you mean? 
I mean the dog. I want to do what I can for him. That's all. You bet. What is it you're trying to prove exactly? I'm not trying to prove anything. Oh, come on. It's always the same with you intellectuals. You always make, I don't know, some kind of a general issue out of everything. Are you trying to prove it's curable? It is curable. Sure it is, but you've got to begin in the cradle. It would take 50 years. That's not a solution. That's forbearance. Anyway, with keys, what with keys? You're in good hands. The best. He knows about venom. An expert. Be seeing you. He wanders away with that slow, rolling walk of cowboys, sailors, and lonely men. The monkey is clinging to the bars, holding out its tiny hand, yapping. Chapter 4 Back at Arden, Celia, our Spanish friend, tells me that a señor muy simpatico has been there twice to speak to me, didn't leave a message, but will be back later. Una cosa muy importante. It is three in the afternoon. I am out on the patio by the pool, chewing gloomily on a wet cigar butt. Seaberg is out raising funds for the Montessori school she has been helping to survive for a year or so. One of the goals this school has set itself is to give black children an education without hate. Yes, folks, it's here, written in big letters in their brochure, an education without hate. Now, if this is what makes the school so very special and different from others, I suddenly feel a great urge to attend that school myself. The very idea of the need for a school without hate fills me with precisely that. Hate. The black-white situation in America has its roots in the core of almost all human predicaments. Deep down within something, it is high time to recognize as the greatest spiritual force of all time, stupidity. One of the most baffling paradoxes of history is that all our intelligence and even our genius have never succeeded in solving a problem when pitched against stupidity where the very nature of the problem is precisely what intelligence should find particularly easy to handle. Stupidity has a tremendous advantage over genius and intellect. It is above logic, above argument. It has no need for evidence, facts, reasoning. It is unshakable, beyond doubt, supremely self-confident. It always knows all the answers. It looks at the world with a knowing smile. It has a fantastic capacity for survival. It is the greatest force known to man. Whenever intelligence manages to prevail, when victory seems already secured, immortal stupidity suddenly rears its ugly mug and takes over. The latest typical example is the murder of the Spring of Prague in the name of correct Marxist thinking. There is another reason for my sadness. 
much more personal and it throws a rather comical light on myself. Since my arrival in Hollywood, my house, that is, my wife's house, has become something like general headquarters for a Save the World Now army and I am up to my nose in Vietnam, Biafra, Greek dictatorship, plus some 20 million American blacks, not to forget the Indian, Mexican, and Puerto Rican minorities, police brutality, how to fight the drug problem, and the environment, of course, yes, the environment. I almost forgot that one. Now, it so happens that I have a personal problem, have had it for some time. I am in danger of becoming a professional beauty. I have written some 15 books, all dealing, fiction, or personal memoirs with various forms of human predicament and agony, almost all bestsellers. See what I mean? There are many ways of becoming a professional beauty, not to say a whore, and one of them is to write noble books, to take inspired humanistic positions on all the right causes, keep signing those manifestos. You become a professional of other people's suffering and you end up by no longer quite knowing if you are working for humanity or on your own moral beauty, on your own image and no disrespect intended for he was a great man as well. But who can deny that Lord Bertrand Russell, bless his truly noble soul, did become a professional beauty and that this self-creation, this tirelessly painted self-portrait in all its generosity, in all pure goal of true belief and intention in the last analysis was a more successful achievement than the actual practical help he succeeded in giving the world more evident than the social changes, which ones? that he brought about. Every time I see another black face in my living room, I feel the presence of a bestseller lurking. Another indignant, fighting mad book that will do a lot for me and nothing for the world, nothing in terms of solution, changes, help. My home on Arden is bursting with liberal American goodwill and idealism. There are moments I feel it may rise from the ground and fly to heaven. Noble souls, black and white, with a few of the usual con men and informers thrown in as if to underline with the blackness of their souls the purity of the others, have the run of the place night and day, and when Seaberg is out working at the studio, they keep the sacred fire burning, waiting for her return. I have never seen so much moral beauty per square foot, and for the first time in my career, when at last I managed to lock myself up with my wife in our bedroom, I find myself having scruples. Yes, what kind of a brute am I? What with Vietnam and all those starving Biafran children staring at me? See what I mean? A rapist. That's what I have become at the age of 54, a rapist. For 40 years of my life, I have been dragging all over the world with me, my hope, and my liberal beliefs as intact, unshakable, and unbreakable as immortality itself, perhaps, indeed, the only taste of immortality given to man. 
and in spite of all my efforts to give up once and for all and to attain that peace of mind and soul which comes when you sink to the bottom of despair and disillusionment and rest there peacefully in the comfortable mud of indifference, I keep popping up to the surface again physically and physiologically incapable of giving up hope of giving up period all my attempts at cynicism always end in dismal failure a goddamn unsinkable liberal the kind you find hung by the neck from every branch of hope in my totally misunderstood novel the guilty head i showed myself under the disguise of genghis Khan, trying to attain cynicism through self-mockery and self-parody trying to get rid of sensitivity and vulnerability until my hero's very life became a whirling dervish's dance a clowness atlas attempting and failing to shake the world off his back my impatience with liberals is nothing but impatience with myself a scorpionesque assault on my own hope not unlike those negroes in whom hatred for their condition turns into a hatred of other negroes a well-known form of transfer as with jew-hating jews i withdraw into a corner listening to abdu murad a young dentist who got rid of his former all-american thomas nettleton self white skull cap riding that pseudo african hairdo that has achieved nothing except to start a fashionable trend in wigs in paris haute coiffure and haute couture a beautifully embroidered yashmak and why does he think it makes him look different considering that this typically american taste for parading in disguise as with all the knights of columbus shriners and all the incredible get-ups to be admired at political conventions is really conforming to americana i don't want any more of your psychoanalytical bullshit he is yelling sure Whitey's hatred for blacks is nothing but transferring his guilt and hatred for himself, but I don't want to untie the Gordian knots. I want to cut them. Some young white guy whom I always seem to find around my house, but somehow we never get introduced, and who is so cool and self-controlled that from time to time his whole body begins to shake and rivulets of sweat run down his forehead raises a calming hand all i mean to say is that this is essentially a psychological situation rather than a social one a typical french intellectuals discussion my home has become the hollywood branch of the cafe de Floret in saint germain des Prez. perhaps the true reason for my exasperation is the number of various leeches and parasites who gravitate toward my wife. My beady eyes follow them through the room and whenever they come around in that it's not just your wife, I like you too way, I bear my teeth and almost growl. God knows there are some wholly committed hard workers here, but let me tell you that this colorful Ahmed Islam Marabout, or whatever name he chose last week to go with his newly shaved head and flowering white gandera robe, 
is nothing but an honest-to-God, long-live America con man milking both white and black, and Seberg knows it as well as I do. And that is even why she's particularly kind to him. She feels guilty because she has found him out. She tries hard not to make him feel like a son of a bitch. I get an irresistible urge to tell him that his new organization is nothing but a sham and its purpose is not to help blacks in their struggle but to grab whatever they can for its three members while competing for recognition and foundation grants and jockeying for position against other similar pseudo groups on the fringe of the true civil rights movement. The idea is to attract big names and personalities capable of impressing the various foundations and federal authorities. We had this same situation in the French resistance during the German occupation. It is the shadowy price, authentic sacrifice and dedication pay for shining too brightly. You know, Gary, somehow we never had a real talk, you and I. Why don't we go have dinner someplace? The lower nerve on the left side of my face is dead, and it gives my smile a crooked, mean, sarcastic touch. Sincerity, in fact. The guy wanders away quietly. I have never put my nose in Gene's financial affairs, but as with every movie star, I guess, there are always a few ravens around her who play and usually win by betting on her double feeling of guilt. Her guilt as a movie star, probably one of the most scorned because the most envied of human beings, and her old Lutheran guilt with its inbred poison of original sin. This is one of those moments when I wish I were more conventional, more of a bourgeois, so that I could avail myself of the French martial code dating back to Napoleonic days, claim the husband's rights of lord and master, such as they are still spelled out by the law, and kick out of my house one or two black hustlers who are mercilessly preying on the black man's hurt and on the white man's guilt. No use deluding myself. I don't feel any more at ease here in this country than back home in France. Too much of my life has been spent in America and I am no longer able to savor the blessed feeling of being a stranger here. I phone my publisher in Paris and wangle out of him a writing assignment in Japan for one of his lousy magazines. I had already been to Japan and had felt so lost and alien there to everything and everybody the whole country and its people had made on me such an impression of strangeness that I can truly say without bragging that I knew total alienation there and it was wonderful. I was careful not to take chances. I stayed in Japan only two weeks but during all that time brief as it was I felt a complete outsider not part of anything truly alienated. Alienation today, as you probably know, is the greatest problem of all. How to achieve it, I mean. There's a terrific language barrier in Japan, and it makes everything easier for you. You simply can't communicate with anybody. Lovely, generous country. Tears of gratitude come to my eyes. So I wind up my decision-making machinery and prepare my suitcase, 
ready to run somewhere where I won't hear my wife tell me with tears in her eyes, okay, so Majid is a bastard, but don't forget it is we whites who made him a bastard. My old belligerence gets hold of me again and it is out of that painful self-eating nature which finally leaves you yourself as an enemy. Context of white supremacy. So we did not get all the way through uh, with chapter, is this chapter four? We didn't get all the way through. It's kind of longer, so we'll have to pick up kind of midpoint uh, chapter four uh, for next Thursday. Lots more to go, but I think we got at least a good, nice, good, solid start. This is not a super long book, so... Mm, maybe a month, month and a half or so. I think we'll have to pick again before the summer is out. So, But we should have some. Well, we'll see. We'll have our first segment. People can share their thoughts, uh, what they felt about audio segment one, the number to dial. New number to dial is 720-716-7300. The code is the same, 564 nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to join us we were supposed to read this book perhaps at this moment or wherever but we were supposed to read this book all the folks who were with us uh the first time around uh non clemson grad miss c retired firefighter thomas in new york uh, be in Toronto, all should be with us. If you have not shared at all and you think you have commentary uh, on the week's first segment, feel free, make sure you get your hand up. Do not wait until the last minute. We have more than a half hour before the program concludes, so there should be ample time for all to speak. Uh, let's see. Uh, Irie in Louisiana should be with us. Did you have commentary? Yes, hi. Hi, everybody. Hope you well. The um, part in Chapter 3 where he talked about stupidity, seeming to bleed into everything or overwhelm and take over, I just um, replaced that with white supremacy in my head um, because it does that. <laughs> it does that. And, um, you know, um, I guess all I have to say for now, really, but I thought that was interesting that it was stupidity that was being so um, uh, so punctuated. Thank you. I'll meet my life now. For sure. Uh, let's see. Other folks who dialed in, if you have commentary uh, on the second portion of the audio, what we've heard thus far, line should be open. Feel free. Gus, what was the last four numbers you said um, to that number? I got 7207. I, I just called it in the way I would normally do it. I got through, so I just wanted to write it down. 720716, and I didn't get the last four. 7300. There was so many sevens. I right, got you. 7300. I know. Um, I know. <laughs> 777 there. Um. Man, white guilt. It seemed like an attempt to talk about white guilt. Uh, and even, um, but did he call it original sin, it seemed like? Uh, but either way, you know, he was 
explaining, I guess, his wife is an actress and um, um, how, you know, she has double guilt. With, you know, not only is she, uh, I guess, a white woman, you know, has the guilt of what, you know, they do to black people, but, you know, to be the most envious people, envy people in the world of an actress, you know, it was just, you know, man, um, I don't know, if I have some strange people hanging around my house that I don't agree with, you know, I think that might be grounds for a divorce, you know, like, you know, uh, I don't like the way they're looking at, were they looking at her sexually or, you know, it, it was just um, very odd, you know, the way he, um, put that out there, and I heard the word um, Biafra again, and I think I mentioned that on another show. I noticed white people on um, social media and sites where they can't say nigger. They just replace it with Biafra or Biafran. Um, but, um, you know, I, that line again, is she, I think he said original sin, the guilt of original sin. I, I'm, I'm just assuming the guilt of, of being white you know, and knowing, you know, that uh, our small uh, minority is doing, you know, look at look at what we've done. Uh, also, um, his he likes to go to Japan because, you know, there, you know, he, he you don't have to engage with anyone. It's just now, I believe that white people um, have a problem when people ignore them and um, they they don't want to be. Um, let them be a part of whatever they're doing, and that's generally when they impose. So it's like he was the opposite. You know, he wants to go somewhere where, you know, white people are looked at like you know, total outcasts and um, don't don't fit in, and he'd be happy there, which is odd. No one, you know, really wants to be in that situation. I'm doing my line for now. Thank you. Much obliged, Thomas, in New York. Uh, let's see. Other folks, uh, if you have thoughts on second audio segment, what we've read from White Dog, line should be open. Proceed. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Um, I got a few things. Mostly, the narration, or not, just, not your reading, but like the constant jump between the dog in the uh the narrator is you know still getting to me a little bit but i'm doing my best to follow along uh one of the lines that was said i didn't get the exact line but it said a city um insidious people hide their malign attempt behind movements to stop such action i was talking about like the civil rights era and this is what i think the narrator was uh referencing when he made that particular point and i find that interesting because you know obviously um, the regular history, this is the kind of thing that a uh, white person does to refine itself. You know, uh, victims, you know, respond a certain way, and then all of a sudden, um, start, please start getting hijacked um, through the whole, um, you know, rioting or um, revoking process. Uh, another line that was said, uh, he was a beautiful animal. It would be a pity to give up on him, just like white, um, um, yes. Yeah. So at that point, I think he was referring to the dog and trying to put him in a kennel or find like a black trainer and not give it up on him. To me, you know, it reminds me of that idea that, you know, no matter how bad, you know, um, a white person behaves, you know, they're never beyond redemption. I think one of the most interesting examples to me personally about this is um, Anders Brevik in, um, I think, the Netherlands. You know, obviously he did a horrible thing, but at least in the Netherlands, 
one of the things that they don't do is that they banned um, lifetime sentences. So as bad as Andrew Barrett, you know, the crime he committed was, um, was he'd only be in jail for, I think, 21 years, and he had a good at least 20 to 30 years to live the rest of his life in the Netherlands. I assume that's probably going to be a good life. Um, let's see. The narrator is asked, why are you trying to save the dog when the dog is at, um, when he's attacking people? You know, I think that gets to that idea of paternalism. You know, the, the narrator is constantly referencing, you know, I think liberals and stuff like that. You know, they're supposed to be the better people and stuff like that. But me personally, you know, I see that as kind of one of those um, paternalistic behaviors that white people exhi- um, exhibit. Um, they say, they're saying that they want to help, but, you know, when you look at the effects of the overall paternalistic behaviors, you know, black people are still being harmed. Um, another example, um, a school without hate. Uh, that one just kind of vexed me. I didn't know you went to school for hate or to learn not to hate. It reminds me every time, you know, uh, you know, someone gets harmed, oh, that person needs sensitivity training or something like that. This was so interesting to me because, um, me personally, I tend not to use the word hate, especially when bad things happen because I personally don't think that hate really explains um, the effects of the behavior, especially when someone is really harmed, whether emotionally, physically, or financially, um, I had to look it up in the word book just to really, just to get a better understanding of it and to find, at least in the word book, as submission to fear. Um, and I guess to a certain degree, in the, well, I'm not really sure in the context of the way the author used it, how that would relate. Um, especially because I think there was having like, you know, inter- well, I think about integrating schools and that was not about necessarily just, you know, hey, that was just, you know, keep the black people out of schools and stuff and if they come terrorizing. I'm not sure if hate is really good work to describe that kind of situation. Let's see. Um, another line that the narrator said, um, black hatred turns into hate for other, uh, other black people. Uh, I think it's right before chapter four ended in, you know, um, I think the narrator got it right on that one. Um, anytime you have any kind of, well, at least, you know, when I have conversations with other black people, I imagine um, a lot of the listeners probably have the same experience as well, too. Um, imagine a white person, you might start off by talking about a white person doing something, and before, uh, within the next minute or two, it eventually turns into a conversation about how another black person might have harmed them the same way or maybe harm them even worse, you know, and I do, I do get that to a certain degree because for the most part, it's very easy, obviously, going to the, you know, the black narrative and the black people are worse because most people, most black people's experience is of their black people, so when you only know about your own personal experiences, you know, white people directly and indirectly have an effect on black life, but because you don't come across enough white people, you might think that the black people that you come across are the worst people um, in that kind of context. And this was a personal one. Um, me personally, I'm an avid runner. Well, I'm not sure if I'm as avid as I used to be. Nevertheless, um, when I see, I go walking, so I'm running through my neighborhood. Um, I'm, I walk, I run to the main streets of the, um, of the surrounding area. And sometimes, you know, there's other people who I come across, you know, maybe they're, you know, pushing a stroller, uh, walking their dogs, usually white people. Um, not that white people, black people don't do that as well too, but at least me personally, one thing I've noticed, it's, for example, when I'm coming across a white person going in the opposite direction um, than me with a dog. Me, personally, I always try to maneuver to get away from the dog so that 
the dog, um, the what the white person is between me and the dog. But to me, sometimes it doesn't work out very well. And somehow that white person manages to maneuver that dog between the both of us. And do you want to add anything? Yes. What I, what I've noticed, um, this is Missy. What I've noticed in the first um, recording and then the second one is the mention of cigarettes and cigars and tape. And that was mentioned several times. We'll see Keith, the black man, he's smoking white cigarettes, or the white men, like the narrator, and I think um, his friend Jack were smoking cigars. Um, cigars typically are brown, and cigarettes are typically white. Then it also mentions at the very beginning of the novel about the, the python, Pete the python, and the shape that the python was making. And um, then there's like there's like a whole bunch of snakes in at the zoo. And then in this chapter, it, it says that Keith was the master of milking snakes. Like that was like his primary role at the zoo was to milk like 200 snakes of their venom. And so I, I attach all of that to Dr. Welsing's, um, uh, the ISIS papers. And the last thing I'll say, um, at the very beginning of this section, uh, the narrator, he tries to kill or shoot the white dog. And he fails to do it. He shoots the gun and of course misses the dog because he has no intention of killing the dog because he said it himself that would be an act of suicide for him. So with that, I'll end. I'll end my commentary. Much obliged, South Carolina's finest non-Clemson grad, Miss C. Uh, let's see, anybody, any other folks with commentary that they want to make sure they get in? Don't wait till the last minute. All righty, I'll share a few of my notes, and then we'll check in again. <clears throat> Let's see. Just amazing. There's so many, I felt like there's so many Welsing references in this book. Wish we had read the book and been able to ask if she had seen this, if she read it, like she might have even heard about it in the 70s when they were, you know. Uh, so he's doing his, this is at the beginning of chapter, this is chapter, or kind of midway in chapter two. I says, 10 years ago, the hills, this is the Hollywood Hills, Griffith Park. Uh, ten years ago, those scrub-covered hills were a favorite place for lovers of nature and simply lovers. Today, people take a drive through the wilderness but rarely leave their cars. The crime rate is rising constantly in L.A. That, oh, man, that is exactly why we got to go upside the head of a Rodney King and whoever else because crime. That constant connard crime, and generally they mean Negro hooliganism. That is the problem, why it's not safe anymore. So, oh, man. And even he continues, he says the crime, and he says as in all big cities, and though you only have one chance in a thousand of being mugged, each of us, I think he's talking about white people, imagines destiny as a personal exclusive relationship and feels a specially selected target for Negro crime. Uh, let's see. When he says, I feel as if I have tried suicide and failed, when he shoots the dog and misses, Romaine Gary did commit suicide. In fact, 
he killed himself before this book was even made into a movie. Uh, they do a uh, homage, if you will, uh, to him and just recognizing him in the movie with a still frame. Uh, but thought that was interesting. Uh, let's see. He says, I tried to kill the dog, failed. The dog raised his eyes toward me, then lowered his head again to wait. You don't believe me, I know. Well, get the hell out of this book then. This is God's truth, and it's for true believers. Now, wait a minute. Now, that is a real white moment in a book. Now, I told you at the beginning, Romaine Gary is thought of as a liar. Apparently, he got caught lying about a lot of things, like his name, where he was born, lots of, lots and lots of things. So he's known, like the New York Times, they have reports written about him as a con man. That's what they call him, liar. So it might be justified, logical, that people have some suspicions about this story. They do. I am suspicious anytime when I hear a white person, someone where there should be suspicion about whether or not this person is truthful when they make a statement like, oh, honestly. All right, being truthful now. Oh, you got to believe. When they say something like, uh-oh. Uh-oh, uh-oh. Because <laughs> people generally don't include that sort of thing. If they're being true, they just, you know, are chatting up. Why include that? Think so that put one there. And then if you don't believe me, well, get the hell out of the book. Hmm. Well, I cannot believe and continue reading. I mean, I can be a, a, a suspicious reader, or is that not allowed? Can't be suspicious of this white man? He says this is God's truth. The religion of white supremacy. I don't even know what that means. Like, are you God? Like, what is going on? The whitest moment of the book thus far. Uh, let's see. There's a new kind of logic around because of Biafra. Now, when I heard Biafra, I thought, oh, man, education of a British protected child. We read that way back, like, woof. Uh, Chinua Achibe, he also wrote Things Fall Apart. Uh, but he talks about the Biafran conflict. Uh, he's a citizen born in Ni uh, Nigeria. And specifically, he talked about in that book, there were a lot of, this is the same time period, a lot of white do-gooders uh, were, oh, man, the Biafran conflict, we want to support them being you know, independent from Nigeria. And we were talking in that book like, man, this conflict would not have even lasted if white people weren't supporting it. If it wasn't for white people... Hopping is, oh, yes, we will help you gain independence. You don't want to be with those no-count Nigerians, criminals, crooked. Uh, if they hadn't been doing that, that conflict would have lasted like one day, and that would have been it. Squabble over, no conflict, no arguing, no fighting. Like white humanitarians allowed this con their support, so-called help, allowed this conflict between black people to go on for like a year, like a really long time. Under the people like Gene Seberg and this fellow, Romaine Gary. Anyway, we talked about that uh, education of a British protected child, Chinua Chibe. Uh, let's see. Oh, and it's the logic. Because of Biafra, because of Vietnam, because of hunger, slavery, and wretchedness almost everywhere in the world, you feel excused from helping a blind man across the street. I said, now, wait a minute. Because he started all this with saying, yeah, I know, Biafra. Doing nothing for Biafra, that's some excuse for not doing anything for the dog. Like, now, wait a minute. Uh a blind, and then he does all that to say, well, if you're not going to do anything about Vietnam, then you shouldn't help the blind guy across the street. Like, wait a minute. We started this talking about the dog. The dog is not the same thing as a blind, uh, white or non-white person, Vietnam, Biafra, none of that. Uh, if we're talking about doing something to help another person, another member of the same species, 
oh, okay, that should probably be done if we can do it. This racist, killer, terrorist dog, totally different, who goes out and kills people like this would also be benefiting people, which the animal trainers told him repeatedly. People, they put that in the movie as well. The world would be better without that dog. Continuing. <clears throat> then he goes to himself in a third person. Now I do that as well from time to time. Others do also. But it is curious. I, I don't remember too many books that we've had an author that goes into third person. And at this moment, and as for bullying, putting a bullet through Botka's head, there is a name for that, Mr. Romaine Gary, sir. Capitulation. I don't even know what he's capitulating to, capitulating to the idea that white people are racist, irrevocably, dedicated to it, can't be rehabilitated. Is that capitulating? Uh, let's see. Lots of cigar references and smoking references. I'll light up a Havana cigar expensive enough to feed an Indian family for 10 days. What a metaphor. Bragging. What you niggers spend to feed yourself for a week, I smoke it. Might not even light them all the way. He said that about the white man who smoked and called it not smoking because he would just light it and then put it out. Let's see. I thought this was uh, Mr. Romaine practicing racism here. So he doesn't kill the dog, and they get back in the car to leave. He says, I feel myself again, by which I mean a sucker no one can cheat of his faith in what in you. I give vodka a friendly wink. It can be done. With a little goodwill and patience, we shall overcome. Now, this is this book was published in 1970, so he's probably hanging out late 60s. Dr. King was just assassinated. Marshall Washington has just happened. This is the tacky way that you bring in the we shall overcome uh, from the civil rights singing and what have you in reference to this racist mongrel. Romaine Gary, suspected race soldier. Uh, let's see. All right, this is what I said, and this is Mr. Carruthers, Noah's Ark, Religion of White Supremacy. He says, Gary, get off my back, forget it, put the cur in a clean living kennel with no niggers. Is it clean because there are no niggers? I know a terrific one in Santa Monica, strictly deluxe, all white. Is it terrific because there are no niggers? Then they get to their conversation about they get another Elijah Muhammad disc. I'm told the Muslims qualify for one if they present qualify for tickets to Mecca. Muslims qualify for their tickets to Mecca if they present Elijah Muhammad with five blonde scalps or five pairs of pink ears. He didn't even say white pink. Welsing moment for sure. White people are not the color white. Uh, he says, all right, so if you get the black guy, he used to come back and milk the snakes. Great, you can keep your racist dog here. It's a deal. I have 200 snakes full of beautiful venom and no one to milk them. Keys is a venom expert. I don't breathe a word of this. Oh, I thought all of that was important because they keep talking about how Keys is so full of hate. He's the most hateful person in the world. Is he training dogs to bite white people? I don't know, but they keep saying he's so full of hate. And then the only skill that he's good at is getting this venom out of the snakes. Like he's so hateful that all he, he's just filled with poison. He can just extract poison from others because he's so filled with hate. Anyway, so he breaks uh, the white dog back to the house, and he says he doesn't tell Gene this uh, because it's not the right moment because they've got a house full of mil black militants, not just militants, black militants. Now, a scene like this is similar in the movie where a white person lies about the dog 
to a black person, and this, in my view, is endangering the black people. If this dog escaped, got out of the garage, uh, house full of niggas, my goodness, going to town, get them all. Now, that word militant, if white people are training dolphins and training dogs to attack black people, and this is referenced repeatedly, what does a black person have to do to be a militant? Do you all know any black people who train dogs to attack white people or any animals? Do they have a snake? Honky the Strangler was sitting around waiting to, you know, bite, scratch on, you know, choke out a white person. I don't know any black people who behave. The nation of Islam doesn't even function like that. Like, that's just more racist lies right there. Like, I, I am not knowledgeable at all. Elijah Muhammad, yes, bring me the scalp of a blue-eyed white devil. You will get a trip to Mecca or anything else. White people on the other, oh, yeah, long record of white people going out and doing exactly that putting bounties on black people. I think they got a price on a shot of, uh, a side of Shakur's head right now, 2020. Read her biography in the book club, too. Let's see. Uh, so we got Jeffrey Epstein mentioned again. This fella, Romaine Gary, says he's with Gene Seberg. He says... Duh, 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 duh. Talking about her idealism, blah, 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 can't leave the problem alone. Uh, it creates a serious problem for our marriage. There's a 24-year age difference between us. So if she's in her 20s, he's in like his mid-40s, pushing 50. That is real kind of Jeffrey Epstein, like, are you trotting the globe, chasing down these young girls who are bordering on being legal? Like, it's real Jeffrey Epstein. That got mentioned last week, got mentioned for some of the folks that were here, said that about Einstein. This is another one. Thomas Jefferson, I mean, 24 years older than her. And this is somebody who said he's gone all over the world. Maybe he went to Biafra, Japan, some of these other spots. Might be the same type of thing. Best-selling author, why wouldn't he have access? Uh, he says he was there. He's seen it all. He was there. Mussolini's invasion of Ethiopia. I don't know which side he was on. I would suspect not fighting for Selassia. I could be wrong. Uh, he says he goes in the house with his wife and the Negro militants. As soon as I appear in the living room, they all shut up. They can feel it. It shows. I mean, you only have to look at me to feel a certain coldness. It's like the dog has walked in the house. Uh, he mentions gaming whitey again, that these different black people would come and try to milk money from his wife and exhort her and the rest. Is gaming whitey, is it that much of a problem? Do you all know any black people, other than Al Sharpton, of course, who are really good at gaming whitey? What have they gotten? Can we get skills at gaming whitey? That might be a useful you know, strategy. Uh, let's see. We get the description of keys to the colors while they're eating pancakes. Uh, he says his teeth, talking about, this is uh, the author, Gary, says that Key's teeth are very small, very white and sharp, very close set, and the effect is that of twice the quantity of teeth in any ordinary God-fearing mouth. Like he's some sort of Satan heathen, doesn't believe in white Jesus or anything. Again, the, the way that he talks about the black people in this book as animals, he says at one point he's got the 20 million black people in America on his back. That's generally a phrase that's used. You say you have a monkey on your back. I just feel like he has a lot of ways of talking about black people as though they're not people, they're not humans, man not, woman not, suspected race soldiers, so I'm not totally surprised. Uh, 
and then compare, or I guess you can compare and contrast the loving way that he's talked about this dog throughout the book and the way that he's talked about black people, all of them, the black child, Keys, all of them. Uh, let's see. And Ski, uh, Keys is scheming. He's a scheming Negro, just like the blacks at his house who are gaming Whitey. Uh, anything else? I just pause here. White people have resources and time to waste that they can train kangaroos for an exhibition boxing match as entertainment for Korean orphans. That's the system of white. Black people are starving. What's just happened? Are they going to rebuild our neighborhoods? Can we get clean water? Will the police stop killing us? All these different myriad of problems. And we're putting our resources into training kangaroos for an exhibition boxing match to entertain Korean children that they have probably stolen from another armed conflict. I'll pause there. Uh, let's see. Are there folks we missed totally? Oh, our narrator, Mel, did such a great job, Einstein, on race and racism uh, with us as well. Any thoughts on White Dog? Hello. Can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Um, I had some carryover notes from the first reading, but I'm going to condense these. So in in this book, in the first section, I did want to emphasize that there did seem to be, to me, an adoration of the best parts, quote-unquote, of U.S. history, not the parts where the Native people were slaughtered or raped or rendered homeless and nationless. Um, there was a small, harsh emphasis on the self-control in so-called Catholicism for training the USA to be a place genuine in its, I think it was, quote, inability to not solve problems. And I'm just thinking, like, which USA is he talking about where they can't sleep at night unless problems are solved? Because there are literally board games in this country called Crimes Against Humanity. Um, my second point, uh, he mentioned California skies reminding him of orange trees or something like that. And again, the potential of racist migrant farm labor, labor abuse or incarcerated prison labor does not bring me joy, but I also don't disconnect the stolen land from the disenfranchised labor. And then speaking of the stolen land, the part about the blonde scout um, to me, it's just another example of putting scalping on non-whites because scalping, as told to me at least by some some Native communities, appeared to be a white carryover. It's not something Natives did initially or widely. Um, and then there was a part, I'm trying to remember if I heard correctly, that he said that the dog acted horribly to the black insurance man and the pool man that came to the house, but that they acted nicely to his white friends who came to the house, implying that to me, as of yet, like he has no black people who go to his house as just friends hanging out. And then I guess the black people who clean his pool and who come and sell him insurance, all service people, um, they're just, I'm guessing they look like Malcolm X in the face, which is another weird line that he had about a lot of black people looking like Malcolm X to him when they're just trying to offer him insurance and clean his pool. Like, I'm just trying to figure out what that expression would look like. Um, but in the second reading, to me, the most important or the most interesting thing so far, not most important, but the most interesting thing so far was that his wife has all these um, like so-called crazy liberals in their house, and he's mad because they seem phony. The irony here. But um, he says one guy in particular looks crazy because he cut off all his hair, he's wearing a long white shirt, and he's changed his name a lot in one week. 
And he said that his wife does not correct this weird phony of a white man because she is embarrassed of him. And I thought this was a fascinating act of racism because you are a white person who wants to fight racism. But when you see another white person who's in your home, who seems to be following your leadership, um, trying to fight racism incorrectly, you don't correct him. You just call him a jerk, as he did. And I, that to me just solidified, like, she was not here to solve problems. He's probably not here to solve problems. And that kind of leads me to my final point that I feel like when some whites start talking about race, it's something a lot of racist white people do when they start feeling like an outcast by other white people. So they start talking about race when they feel outcasted. Um, particularly in this case where he mentions he literally feels like an outcast, especially in Japan. And I feel like he's using race and blackness as a vehicle for discussing himself at length in the form of a beast, interestingly enough. But um, like Mrs. Clemson grad said earlier, I do feel like he is over-identifying with the dogs because it, it feels wrong because humans are so capable of so much more than dogs. But if he's comfortable being associated with like his more base nature, I would be a fool to not see the con man hiding in the shadow of a good cause, I think is the phrase that he used. Um, and those are my, that, that's all I have for now. Mm. Great points uh, from Mel. Yes. The irony, he, he seems to upbraid the white liberals who are hanging out with his wife and in his house, no less, uh, upbraiding them for their phoniness. And, you know, again, a white man. Am I, am I incorrect? You all feel free. Uh, either one. If we should have picked a better book, like is, is this just the nuttiest pick in the world for the Rona? Or just looking for ways of accusing folks of being sexual predators and molesters. Is there, you know, like an eyebrow raise for that? If it was Bill Cosby, I think they would have said something. Him being 24 years older, he's like in his mid-40s, he's in her, like, 20s. Is that that's kind of getting close to Epstein? Yes, maybe. Hey, can I be heard? Yes, sir. Yeah, it sounds more like um, Harvey Weinstein, you know, got the – Actresses on the young actresses on the casting couch, you know, um, ending up uh, marrying one of them. Um, but yeah, this was a great book. Uh, I like it better than the last book already. <laughs> um, you know, it kind of reminded me when he was talking about the pink ears that stood out to me too. Um, but um, <laughs> I think it pig, you know, with the pig ears or whatever. But um, the Islamic people, the Arabs, and they, they say, you know, they, they strap them with the bomb and they go blow themselves up, but they're going to get 77 virgins, you know, when they see the Prophet Muhammad or something like that. And that's what, like, 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 uh, we walk around that psychotic, you know, in the mindset, like, you know, we're, we're living for the afterlife. Um, white liberals, um, you know, you can't gain... Black people cannot game white people. You know, like we're playing the game and they're just moving the pieces around. They're not even on the on the, the chessboard. Um, he and his wife knew they were being game, but they still decided to play along. You know, poor Negro. You know, let's just play along, and that helps white supremacy when white people do that. Of course, you know, good white people. Um, but also. I can see the liberals today hosting a party for the poor Negro kids in school or, you know, the kids that drunk the lead water and um, having a black door in the backyard, you know, just in case the Negroes get out of line. Uh, I heard a mention of Anders Brevik, and I was looking at a video, and they were um, talking about the new um, PlayStation 5, 
and I had an Anders Breivik um, thought because remember uh, when he had here he is in jail with a PlayStation Three and he petitioned to get a PlayStation Four, so I said he'll probably be getting a Five pretty soon when it comes out. Um, but you know that's that's what I thought when um, someone mentioned him. I believe it was Clemson grad. I'm mute my line. Thank for sure. Uh, let's see. We missed uh, four Black Panther. Uh, should be with us as well. Four Black Panther. Did you have comments here? Are you just listening or did you have comments here? We're not hearing your audio. I don't know if your uh, headset is not working. May I, be, may I be heard? Gotcha. Yes, sir. I just wanted to share that. I thought the broadcast was very interesting and constructive, and I do believe that this was a good book uh, to to read. Um, that was all. Thank you. Much obliged. Can't be reading nonsense, or at least, you know, trying not to. Uh, if we do, you know, make a pick. Don't have a problem acknowledging this one would be all me because I picked this book, wanted to read it. Uh, we haven't man, we just started. We haven't even got to the good stuff yet. Uh, white. If folks, you know, would like a copy, I don't even have the total book yet, but I do have most of it. Uh, so I guess at some point uh, I should be able to help if folks want, you know, to read along as we are scooting through the book. Uh, it is fascinating. I've made a lot of highlights, and we still have lots of uh, juicy parts to go. Excuse the pun. Uh, Romaine Gary's White Dog. We'll try to weave in, I guess, the film. You know, if you want to take time somewhere in the next month to watch the movie, uh, which Dr. Gerald Horn did recommend we check out when he was with us a few weeks back. Uh, but if you take time to watch the movie, that might be interesting as well, because the book, like I said, is all, this is totally different. Like, we are, what, three chapters in? And that's it. Like, pretty much everything from here forward is not in the movie. You only get about the first 30 minutes of the book is the movie, and from that point, they are two different narratives. Uh, so if you watch the movie... Wow, <laughs> why did they make such drastic changes with the book, you know, and what they put in and what they took out and, you know, how the book ends and all. I mean, it's a very, very different story. Equally constructive. I don't know about this might be constructive, might not. We'll have to get to the end. But the movie is very constructive. We'll have to see how it differs from uh, the book. Check it out if you, you know, have any free time. Uh, we'll be here tomorrow, Neutralizing Workplace Racism. Still trying to adapt with the whole Rona situation. They're doing implementing restrictions again in some states. So lots of chaos on many fronts with regards to employment. Uh, we will have the compensatory call-in this Saturday, normal time, 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific. And we will have our global Sunday talk on racism uh, this Sunday, normal time, well, the early broadcast time, uh, 3 p.m. Eastern. 2 p.m. Central and 12 noon Pacific. Uh, we will be able to check in uh, and kind of see. I've been saying it looks like a lot of the violence uh, in terms of white people being directly violent with black people has been focused in the U.S., but we'll check in with folks in different parts of the world and see. Uh, also see how they are dealing with the Rona situation, uh, where they are. And, man, crazy, crazy summer continues. But we will be here looking forward to checking in with different folks all around the globe. Uh, Silent Warrior as well. thought I saw him briefly in Norway. I don't know if I'd be up this late to hear about some crazy dog. Anyway, much obliged for everyone tuning in. Hope it was worthy of your Thursday evening. 
sobriety would be best, man, with all of the extraordinary problems and difficulties that we are having this year, definitely want that brain-computer working at maximum efficiency and just to be alert uh, so that you can know what's happening around you. Try to keep yourself as safe as possible. Uh, in addition to being sober, let's be buckled. Uh, again, it is really dangerous. Lots of incidents of armed white people threatening, terrorizing, brandishing firearms at black people this week as well, all summer really, all year really, excuse me. Um, really be alert. Uh, if you are out and about, uh, be vigilant. If it looks like a white person, anybody really, is being hostile, you don't know them, they're being aggressive towards you, we're not trying to save face, not trying to prove anything. Even if you are armed, exit. That's what you want to do. Get out of there. You have no idea if this white man, white woman is working in concert with someone else. You don't know if this person is armed. You don't know if they are an enforcement officer in plain clothes. You have no idea. Exit the scene. If it does not look safe, if it looks like things could be escalating, even if it's not with you per se, if it looks like it could be escalating, have that in mind. Like, do I need to get out of here? I do not want to be around. If it's going to be hostile, I don't know who's going to have a firearm or the police going to have to show up. Like, man, it is super dangerous, at least in the U.S. That's what it looks like to me. Definitely here in Seattle, like micro and macro where I am, I'd be saying the exact same thing. And it wouldn't matter if I was in Florida, California, Iowa, Michigan, New York. Man, dangerous times. If you are out, you are sober, you're buckled up. If you're driving you are not on the cell phone. Doing the small things that we can to avoid contact with race soldiers, badge or no. That said, Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy, no name calling. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves, remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. I've seen pics. They got Harvey Weinstein, convicted sexual predator. They got pictures with him and Jeffrey Epstein. That's peas in a pod, peas in a pod. Cow signing out. Thanks all. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, brother. You're a victim. I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned.